This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the program. Dr. Matt here, your guide on the side. Three hours a day, starting right now, we will be uh, giving you the latest, the greatest research, information, stories, some of which actually matter to you, and many of which don't, but uh, you still might want to use them in your life. The goal is to give you the handbook to make your life better, and uh, what a better way to get started than knowing today is it's, it's an international holiday. It's chocolate ice cream day. <laughs> you know, vanilla is considered the most popular favor of ice cream. But ever since Italians froze hot chocolate in 1692, chocolate has been a close contender. Good job to the Italians. The Italians have really, I think, you know, made the world great in a variety of ways. You know? Pizza. Pizza. Lasagna. Oh, lasagna. All forms Gelato. of pasta. Gelato. Mmm. Where would we be? Ferrari. Come on. Life is good because of them. Chocolate ice cream day, but not to be outdone, those of you that aren't into ice cream, it's also running day. Exactly. Why would you run when you could walk? You know? If you've ever been to the finish line of a marathon, or even just anywhere along the route, you've, no, you've noticed that nothing seems more miserable than a marathon. So why run? They got to get from point A to point B. What's the hurry? Just everybody slow down. Grab yourself some chocolate ice cream, and today's the day we're going to celebrate. Uh, running day, June 7th. Running month was established to bring together those people who, who absolutely love running. I know there are some of them. I've seen like two or three. And, um, you know, I don't know. I can't. I, I, my favorite stories are the stories that tell us that running's not good for you, that it makes you die younger. And then I'm like, oh, yeah, see, that's why I don't run. That and other reasons. It's just not – I my dad tried to get me running as a child uh, in a little mini marathon. I guess it was probably a 5K back then. A fun run. It was a fun run for kids. Fun. And I think I came in like fifth or sixth place. Out of five or six? There was like seven. Okay. And um, I haven't liked running ever since. Yeah. I mean it was, he was a great effort. It's just – I don't know. I don't see what the hurry is. We need to slow down. In fact, today we're going to slow down and talk about – is it an end of international cooperation with the Brexit movement, with um, you know us pulling out of the, the Paris Accords, uh, with um, NATO issues? Is there, is there a new signal out there that says no more international cooperation? We're just not going to work as much together anymore. Hmm. And our next guest is going to be talking about it in studio. By I, the heard, way, I heard a, uh, a podcast argue – that Brexit is actually a way for Britain to reach out by getting out from underneath European Union regulation. Right. Because the regulation they had to kind of – every time they do something, you had to check and make sure if you're breaking some rule they made. Right. And so get rid of all the regulation. Now we can actually reach out to the world. Yeah. And it doesn't no, – that just, wasn't the message they presented with that's Brexit. A, that's, a, that's an illusion. Yeah. But it's – they don't i mean how would you like to it's how would you like to be regulated and this is why some people don't like like nafta and some of these mm-hmm. other trade agreements because all of a sudden some international community is dictating how we run something locally 
And a lot of people don't want to give up that local power. But if you don't give up the local power to a higher power, then you're not going to get the levels of cooperation from everyone around you. That's hmm. the argument. So we're going to find out, are, are, are those days done? It's kind of, which is kind of scary because that's kind of all we've known for the last 20 or 30 years. We'll just find a new way. Well, that new way by ourselves, just slowly walking in the wilderness all by ourselves. Hmm. Hmm. Scary. So we'll get to that. Um, uh, Dr. William Magnuson will be joining us. He's a professor at te- uh, Texas A&M University, happens to be on campus today. So he'll That's be dropping by to visit with us. Um, we'll get to that fun, plus other you know insights just as we, as we go through uh, our list of things we must learn to make it through life. Uh, we'll get to all that. But first to the headlines with Terry South. Terry, what is going on around the rest of the country? Russia scrambled a fighter jet on Tuesday to intercept a U.S. B-52 bomber they said was flying over the Baltic Sea near its border in an incident that has echoes of the Cold War. The appearance of the B-52 irked Moscow. It was irked. Ooh, don't want to do that. A Russian foreign ministry official said the plane's appearance in Europe would not help to ease tensions between the West and Russia. A former Russian Air Force commander called the move disrespectful. Russian air defense systems detected the U.S. bomber around 10 a.m. Moscow time as it was flying over neutral waters parallel to the the, uh, Russian border and sent a fighter jet to intercept it. The Russian defense ministry said the Russian jet, having approached at safe distance, identified the aircraft as a B-52 strategic bomber and escorted it until such time as it changed course and flew away from the border area, the ministry said. The U.S. military said the aircraft was in international airspace and declined immediate comment on the Russia plane's action. Mm. So, we're like international airspace, but, you know, really close to where taunting. Yeah. Just like when Russia, you know, buzzes our aircraft carriers and stuff. All the time. It's fine. It's not disrespectful. We're just just being friends. It's playful. Hey, just playing with you. In other news, 13 previously exempted Alabama counties saw an 85% drop in food stamp participation after work requirements were put in place on January 1st, according to the Alabama Department of Human Resources. The counties had been exempt from that change that limited able-bodied adults without dependents to three months of supplemental nutrition assistance program benefits with a three-year time frame unless they were working or participating in an approved training program. During the economic downturn of 2011 and 2013, several states, including Alabama, waived the SNAP work requirements in response to high unemployment. Hmm. It was reinstituted for 54 counties January 1st of 2016, the remaining 13 on January 1st of 2017, ending the exemption has dramatically cut the number of SNAP recipients in counties. Among the 13 counties, there were 5,538 adults 18 to 50 without dependents receiving food stamps. As of January 1st, that number dropped to 831. Wow. So 5,500, now 800. So a decline of 85%. Man, alive. Since the beginning of the year. Now, is that because they found work? Is that no. they, were, they were motivated to go get a job, or is it they're just not working and now they're not getting any assistance either? So, I don't, maybe somebody's now messing with the numbers. Who knows? But that, I don't know who would do that. That, but, that could serve two different ar- arguments. Yeah. You know? yeah, and yeah. So you have the people that are like, yeah, get off your duff and get out there and get a job. Man. I don't know. We'll see. It was an interesting uh, uh, story where you see like almost real time the effect of putting a work requirement, which we've talked about before. When you come to some sort of assistance, you put a work requirement right. with it, and 
Boom. See what the effect yeah. is. There's the effect. There's People the effect. Got off the program. America's love affair with backyard chickens is a tad too intimate and mm-hmm. is making some of us sick. Oh, yeah. Cole, listen to this. This year, the Center for Disease Control and Prevention says eight separate salmonella outbreaks yeah. linked to contact with pet poultry have taken place in the United States, sickening more than 370 people in 47 states, hospitalizing 71. No one has died in 2017 as of yet. In 2016, a record 895 people who, uh, I guess, hung out with fowl came down with nausea, vomiting, abdominal cramps, fever that characterized this infection, and three of them did not survive. So the CDC is once again telling flock owners to hold back on the he- hold back on, uh, you know, petting and, and treating and these animals like pets and dogs. Yeah. They're, Don't they're chicken. kiss your chicken. Before we, it's hatched. We've talked about people kissing chickens. We have, yeah. we have a, a PSA, basically, that runs. To protect people to prote- from chicken kissing. So it's not a metaphor. An agency study on the rise of these out- outbreaks found last year that nearly half of the hundred, uh, hundreds of Seminola patients surviving or survey acknowledged, quote, snuggling baby birds. 46% said they allowed their poultry in their home. Man, a lot. As backyard bird husbandry spread throughout urban areas where poultry was previously confined <clears throat> to the dinner plate, many owners have come to see the animals as less than a food source and more as a, a pet. No. But in the new advisory in the current outbreaks, the CDC repeats that cohabitation with poultry is not a good idea, no matter how cuddly and house trained these birds might be. Yeah. No more snuggling chickens, you can't. people. You get a flu. You'll get the flu. You'll get the bird flu. If you're lonely, just get a couple cats. Three, get a cat. Four, five, get a dog. Six. Get anything that doesn't, you know, peck. <laughs> and give you disease. Yeah. Oh, that's crazy. No more snuggling chickens. What it, I think it tells us is people are very lonely. They are. And you just go with what you've got. <laughs> like if you've got chickens... You know, honey, go get me a chicken out of the coop. Daddy's lonely. Do you have neighbors that are trying to raise chickens? Uh, no, but I I live in a town where you could, and um, but I have some friends that do. My I have a sister that has chickens. We have uh, a neighbor, a couple houses down, they have chickens. They also have raccoons. I, I guess it makes sense. You go get your go get your eggs. If you get up early enough. In my neighborhood, you'll hear the roosters go off. Like, there's a couple of roosters around. You're like, what are you guys doing? Welcome to the city. Go buy some farmland. You're in yeah. the middle of a city. What are you it's doing? A, it's a strange thing. Yeah. So that's what I was telling you, Cole. You got you to gotta get rid of that chicken. Because every time you bring it, it just – it's messy. And you just put it in that little room with Terry. Mm-hmm. And Palakiko. And Palakiko. It's gross. It's gross. Palakiko's back, by the way. He is. That went fast. Well, two weeks to Hawaii. It's, well, one. Oh, was it only one? Yeah, it's yeah. like no wonder it went so fast. It was, well, it, it was, I thought it was two. It, it's family, so there's there's limits. <laughs> there's there's yeah, <laughs> there's limits to what you can do. Hey, uh, I read a thing that says twenty five percent of the population the population in the United States have tattoos now. Really, twenty five percent? Huh? Really? Well, you you see them more often, right? Well, but that's come on, that's weird. Why is that, that weird? weird? It just seems like a lot of people going through a lot of pain. I mean, statistically, out of the four of us, you, me, Terry, mm-hmm. Pelikiko, one of us is hiding a tattoo somewhere. I don't think so. No. <laughs> I really don't. But, but it, it, they are becoming more common. But you heard about the guy that got a tattoo and then went, got in the Gulf of Mexico and, yes. you know, picked up a bacteria that You're killed supposed him. to wait because it is an open wound. It's a major a wound and it killed the guy. 
But now there's a news out that there's a color-changing tattoo that will monitor your blood and sugar levels. Oh, wow. So you, I guess people with diabetes can go get this tattoo, which it doesn't sound like a good idea if you have diabetes to go stick a bunch of additional needles into well, your body. I mean, you're already, you know, there's already a lot of needles in your life. So, But it now what it does is it, uh, it keeps tabs on your blood sugar level every day. And um, researchers now at MIT and Harvard are exploring ways to use tattoos to sense when your blood is not at the right level. Hmm. So you would just read your tattoo. Not kind of weird. The paints would, or the the inks would actually change with your blood sugar levels and your pH levels or your sodium levels. Wow! So now your tattoos are going to communicate to you. Hey, it's time to get some more insulin on board. You think they'd make a some sort of wristband to monitor that? Well, yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Well, and I mean, Plus then paint. you just choose your you just choose your design. I mean, I guess that's a way to know who's got diabetes. Yeah. But what seems, color does it turn? Does it say? Uh, it says, when blood sugar goes up, for example, glucose sensing ink changes from blue to brown. Oh. So then you're like, like, let's, like your Smurf, let's say you have a Smurf tattoo. <laughs> your little blue Smurf turns into a brown Smurf. Yeah. But I mean, I guess it would get your attention. Like, man, that Smurf looks pretty sickly. Huh. I probably ought to get some sugar on board. You know what I mean? Hmm. This is what's happening. It, I mean, it's kind of a neat in, innovation. Right. But is it going to be now that you need to get tattooed when you go to the doctor for something? You know, I still think a wristband would be a better idea. Some sort of tracker. Yeah, something's got to be better. Like, I, I mean, I like that they're innovating because I went to the hospital. You know, those little vibrating little discs that light up when you go to a restaurant. Yes. Now they're giving those out at the hospital. You're number fourteen. Yeah, number fourteen. <laughs> oh, I better go get my gallbladder out. Townsend, my, my Partio One. Townsend, Partio yeah, One. Your table is ready. <laughs> that is horrible. When alkaline levels shift, your pH sensor changes from purple to pink. Wow. So now all of a sudden, our tattoos are more than just art. Yeah. Now they're science. Mm. I don't know. I still think we're getting way too many tattoos. It's a permanent thing. Oh, yeah. And there's just something about being a 90-year-old man. Yeah, everything sags, people. This is just the way life works. When that eagle just look, turns into like a plate of red meat. <laughs> it's like mashed potatoes <laughs> all of a sudden, yeah. doesn't look right. Come on! So Jeff is out. Yeah, Jeff's had a baby. Again, Jeff's wife had a baby. His wife had a baby. A woman in Florida gave birth to a 13-pound baby. What? She says, it looked like a toddler when they pulled it out of my belly. Wah! Wah! You know, cesarean. Wah! This is huge. <laughs> Well, but my son-in-law, I think, was about that much. All of his brothers were about 13 pounds each. Really? See, my daughter was 9'6". My daughter was 7'2 or something. So 9'6", and by six months, she was at 18. So she doubled her weight in six months. Yeah. And and the people at the hospital were like, this is crazy. How'd you you do that? Well, we just fed her. We just feed her. High-rich diet. But this kid came out at 13 pounds, so that's... Just huge. That's huge. No, that's not. That's not in clo- my they, family they, genes. She came out as an infant. And they said they had to put her in nine-month-old clothing. <laughs> they had to get her a driver's <laughs> license. That's crazy. Well, I hope Jeff's doing okay. Has anybody heard? Does is no. he just not? That's kind of the point of not being here. Is the rest of us don't bother you. Mm-hmm. I still feel like we should bother him. Really? Like I feel like I haven't bothered him enough. I don't want him to think I don't care. 
No, he knows. He knows that you don't care. Okay, good. <laughs> I didn't want him to think that. Yeah, I mean, you're fine. But as long as he knows that, then I'm all, I'm good. Well, if he's listening, which I'm sure he's not, uh, we miss you, Jeff. You know, just know that you still have a job, and we wish once the baby and everybody's settled, you can come back and be with us again. And don't get a tattoo, even if it changes colors. That's the lesson so far of the day. Science is improving, I guess, how we mark our bodies. Your body's a temple, folks. We don't need, like, neon signs on it. (sighs) We'll take a break. When we come back, we're talking about the end of international cooperation. Brexit. We've heard about it. NAFTA. All the trade agreements. The Paris Trade Accords. All these things. Are they signaling that the world isn't going to work together anymore? It's kind of scary. Stick with us. Welcome back, friends. Uh, You know, Hawaii just became the first state in the union to align itself with the Paris Agreement uh, by law. Despite President Trump's announcement that the U.S. will be backing out of the Paris Accords, is Trump's decision to back out and even Brexit, that you're hearing Brexit uh, with uh, Great Britain backing out of the um, European Union, is that a sign of the international cooperation being dead? Is Is it a point where... We're just not going to work with our neighbors like we used to, where all of the trade agreements, where um, NATO, all of these international accords, we're just not going to be a part of them anymore. We're going to go it alone. Uh, So here to speak with us today is William Magnuson. He is a professor of law at Texas A&M University of Law, uh, received his law degree at Harvard, and currently is a researcher that focuses on a series of interrelated questions about changing relationships between states and corporations in the modern world. He also is an expert in international law. William Magnuson, thanks again for being with us. Well, thanks so much for having me, Matt. This is, um, is, I think, this is a big deal because we hear about Brexit and in fact, there's a vote tomorrow in Great Britain, which which will tell a lot. Are the people really still into the whole Brexit idea? Are they going to going to keep um, uh, going with that idea? And in here in the United States, with with President Trump coming back, not reuniting, or, or uh, actually pulling away from the Paris Accord, beating up NATO quite a bit. What do you think? You, your your position is it might be a point of major change from being kind of more globally focused to being more independent focused. That's right. I mean, this has been an area of research for me for the past few years. And uh, it's been looking at the ways in which countries are more and more turning towards um, taking things on their taking problems and trying to solve them on their own. Instead of um, taking a cooperative approach, trying to reach international agreement, um, going out and negotiating with other countries, countries are increasingly trying to take care of these global problems through what I call unilateral action, trying to do it on their own. On their own. Now, I guess the – I mean it makes sense, right? But it, make, it made a lot of sense to think that we need to kind of grow globally. We need to play really well with our neighbors. We're safer if we're in, a, in a, some type of coalition with bigger f- groups of people. But why are we pulling back? 
Yeah, I mean, so you do have to look back to World War II. I mean, after the end of World yeah. War II, we've had um, basically the, ba- the basis of international peace has been these international multilateral agreements, right? The European Union, uh, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, NATO, um, the free trade agreements, NAFTA. Right. All these things have been um, both a great source of, of peace, but also a great source of prosperity uh, for the past 70 years. Uh, and we're starting to turn away from that, and we've seen both in and in Britain after Brexit and also in the United States with the most recent election uh, that sort of anti, um, anti-free trade, anti-international cooperation uh, is, plays well with the populace. It gets votes. And so, mm. um, uh, so I think there's been a trend towards turning away from international cooperation. Is it, is it because we're not seeing the results we wanted to see from the cooperation and it's, or is it, because it's, and is it because it's impacting us so much locally? Yeah, I think it's a little, a little both, bit of both. Yeah. Um, there certainly are losers from – if you just look at free trade. There are losers from free trade. When you open up your borders to uh, imports from uh, countries that can produce things at cheaper rates, you're going to lose jobs in those right. areas. And so that's a very painful thing and oftentimes it affects people that have a powerful political sway. And so when that happens, then you start seeing people saying, OK, well, maybe we need to raise our tariffs. Maybe we need to raise our borders mm. in order to prevent that kind of harm. Then you run into, it seems like, to the obvious global issues like terrorism and you run into you know, climate change, um, some of these bigger issues. So when, when the United States pulls out of the Paris Accord, it, I, I mean, it's got to have international repercussions. Yep. Oh, it, it definitely will. And, um, and Trump has said that he's going to try to negotiate another international climate accord. Um, but the Europeans have said, no, we're not having any of that. Yeah. So, and, th- and that's one of the problems with this is that when you start trying to tackle these problems on your own, uh, you may be able to do it in one area, maybe one or two areas. Uh, but overall, you're going to eventually run into a case where you're going to need to approach your allies and say, hey, look, we'd like yeah. to get your cooperation on this issue. And if you haven't been helping them in the past, then it may turn out that they won't help you now. And is it – I mean it seems kind of uh, – short-sighted like we at some point we all live or die together right so when it comes to climate when it comes to uh disease and spread of diseases i mean the borders are man-made they're not necessarily going to stop a virus <laughs> that's that's totally right there are, there are some problems that you can tackle on your own yeah um, but there's a lot a lot a lot of other ones that you can't uh, climate change is probably the sort of the, the classic example. Yeah. Um, what happens abroad is going to affect you because um, just because of the very nature of, of, of climate, um, these things don't isolate themselves in one country. So there are some problems that you're just going to have to deal, uh, get, with. deal with internationally. Is this, is this normal? I mean, it, it seems like this might be the normal kind of, you know, inhaling of the country and exhaling of the country. We get bigger, we get smaller. We, is this a normal thing? Do we see it historically, or do we just not have enough historic data? Well, certainly, I mean, certainly, we have seen people go out on go their own, and uh, oftentimes that leads to conflict. Yeah, um, I do think that we're reaching a new stage of it in recent years, um, partially because um, we've become so integrated, we have so many connections with other countries yeah. that um, uh, we run into each other more often. And so that means that oftentimes we'll have more conflict with those people. And so the losers in this international free trade, international cooperation, uh, are starting to get sick of that. They don't, they, don't, they don't see that, well, in the long term, you may benefit from yeah. some of these international arrangements. But in the short term, it, there may be some, some sacrifice. See, and as you see it as, kind of, as a legal expert, um, because a lot of this, it seems like we make these accords to – some of them are symbolic. There, there, there may not be a lot behind it, but it's at least saying – we're cooperative. We're we're in this together, but when we legally pull out, then we're saying exactly the opposite. 
Yeah, the, the Paris Climate Accord is a good example of this. It did not have any binding yeah. um, uh, requirements on us to reduce carbon emissions. We had guidelines, but nothing that we were actually bound to do. Uh, so the fact that we were withdrawing from it suggests, well, not only did this we're – not, we're not even willing to uh, submit ourselves to a non-binding agreement. <laughs> we just don't want to be part of this because it uh, plays well. So it really is more – in a way, that's incredibly offensive, right? Because it, it is saying – we weren't bound anyway. It wasn't going to create maybe the changes, but it was saying collectively we're talking about it, and now we're saying collectively we're not going to talk about it with you. We'll, we'll yeah. do it. We'll do. We'll do another one, but not the one that you all wanted us to be a part of. That's right, and it gets to one of the the ultimate problems in international law, which is that how do you enforce these agreements when there's no policeman to go and arrest you if you don't abide by your obligations? Right. Uh, international law doesn't have that, unlike domestic law. And so um, uh, really what international law relies on as its ultimate um, enforcer is reputation. And if yeah. we're not willing to um, maintain our reputation, then we, then we can withdraw from these accords. And nothing's going to happen to us except for we won't be able to get people to comp- cooperate with us in the future. Yeah, true. Huh? And I mean, again, too, you can see the Brexit in a way makes um, a little more sense maybe because all of a sudden you're, you're bound in England by a decision made in Brussels – and there's no unified system to ensure protection of, of all of Europe. So you're seeing with terrorists that are entering in one country, eventually making their way to Paris or to England. And I mean, it's a frustrating thing because as we try to work together, we have a lot of problems we have to solve. But we also have, I guess, a safer, allegedly safer environment. That's right. The European Union has been struggling with this problem for a number of years. Uh, it's been struggling to integrate such a wide array of countries yeah. into its own um, government. I mean, I mean from really Greece isn't. to the UK, I mean, that's a pretty big jump. That's right. And I, and I do think in, in some ways it may lead to uh, – Brexit may lead to a, a rejuvenation of politics in, in Britain because they, you say, well, look, the, the, this whole campaign has been about let's retake our sovereignty. Let's get back our control yeah. over this. So in some ways it may spell a good thing for, for, for Britain and politics there. Um, but uh, we'll see, about, see what, what ultimate result will come about from the actual negotiation of the exit because that's a big issue at this point. Because I guess in the Brexit example, Great Britain is the biggest player. Germany, Great Britain, Paris, France. So – um, but it, it almost seems like the hanger honors the 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 smaller countries are the ones that are going to be most hurt by this because they were riding, I guess, on the coattails. Yep, that's right. And um, uh, I've I've heard from some some people that uh, that the European Commission is looking to actually impose a relatively um, punitive result on Britain because oh. they say, well, look, it may be the right that 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 you have you have the good argument here, but for us, the most important thing is actually making you exit on bad terms. Because if you exit on good terms, well, then it'll make it look more attractive to other countries to yeah. exit. And the European Commission is very concerned about, uh, well, what if somebody else decides to leave as well? So we want to impose as bad of a result as possible on Britain just for ugly. the very sake of setting that precedent. Do you see other, other countries that are looking to leave Brexit? Has anybody made a move? Uh, nobody's made a move. People were worried about uh, the French election and what would happen uh, there. But Macron ended up winning, and Macron obviously was more pro-EU than yeah. Le Pen. So, so it looks like that will probably not occur. But, I mean, Italy, people have talked about it in Italy. Um, it's, it's a popular um, and, sort of, and also a populist yeah. uh, uh, movement nowadays. When, when you look at this as a, as a, um, a researcher, as an academic, um, and, and, and acts a, an expert in law, it seems to me that – there can't be anything more confusing than trying to take 
uh, you know, independent countries and create a universal law that they'll all play by, especially when there's meanwhile a Russia that could care less um, or other countries. So how 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 advanced is international law as far as being able to meet all the needs of this, these multivariate com- countries? Yeah, and this this is the fundamental question you, that, you, that we we talk about a lot in international law. I mean, what is international law law at all? Yeah, is because, it real? Yeah. Um, so, I think there's a couple answers. One is that it's a very different kind of law than the law that me and you are used to. Yeah. But on the other hand, it does actually have effects on the way that people behave. Uh, just a, a very easy example now is that the laws of war have dramatically changed the way that the United States participates in its wars. Hmm. Um, we have lawyers in the room making decisions on military decisions, and some people have criticized that. Uh, but it does have significant effects on many actors. It has um, lesser effects on other actors. Um, and you do worry about sort of the bad actors out yeah. there, the people who just are willing to say, you know, we're going to snub our nose at everybody else. We're going to totally ignore the obligations that we have on the international stage. It's it's because uh, then too you you know after the Gulf War you'd hear that President uh, Bush uh, maybe not the Gulf War but one of the wars President Bush you know could go be put up for charges of misdo misdoings and misdeeds and all of a sudden your president could be charged with war crimes and I mean it, all of I guess this is international policy trying to create a healthier approach to our world. Yeah, yeah, and there and there were um, debates about the fact that the United States is involved in so many wars. It actually exposes us uh, to potential prosecution. Yeah, um, obviously that none of that has actually come about. Right, but but it is a concern that people have had, and um, uh, it's still a developing area of international law. To what extent can you be held responsible for uh, for crimes abroad, and what amounts to a crime abroad in, in these in that kind of a scenario? That's fascinating. I mean, it really is. The, I, I could ask you a million questions, William, about the law. Uh, Let's do this. Let's take a break, come back and continue discussing international cooperation and kind of get your take. Is it it a bygone of the past? Is it something we're going to talk about? Those days we used to cooperate uh, more with uh, William Magnuson. He is again a professor at Texas A&M at the University of Law there, walking us through uh, international cooperation. Is it a beginning or an end? Stick with us. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Uh, joining us in studio is uh, Professor William Magnuson. He's a professor of law at Texas A&M University, and his primary research interests are business associations, mergers and acquisitions, but also business, international business transactions and international law, which is why we're talking to him. He wrote a wonderful article um, in the conversation about, uh, is Brexit the beginning of the end for international cooperation? And it's not just Brexit. We're seeing a lot of push about kind of it's this idea of getting away from globalism and more focusing on your country, you know, shutting the doors, building walls, hunkering down. Do you sense in your mind, um, Professor, is this the end? Is Brexit signaling something? Is it really signaling the end of international cooperation? I think it does signal something. I don't think it signals that we are at the it's end done. Of, of all international cooperation. Yeah. We'll, we will always be interacting with our partners and our allies around the world. Uh, but I do think it's marked a, a shift to a new stage. 
a stage in which countries are much more um, taking a more hard-edged approach. Say we're, we're going to pursue our national interest, our short-term national interest, even if um, that means not negotiating agreements. And, and sometimes, in, in some cases, actually withdrawing from major agreements that we've committed to in the past, both in the United States yes. uh, and, in, and in the UK. You, in your article, there's a great quote. So I always listen to the articles um, while I'm driving and, and walking and doing things. And there's a great quote you use from philosopher Immanuel Kant uh, about um, perpetual peace. The only means for nations to emerge from a state of constant war was to give up their savage lawless freedom and by accommodating themselves to the constraints of common law, establish a nation of peoples that continually growing will finally include the people of the earth. So in a way, we we went global to kind of get away from our savage kind of nationalistic approaches to take on a, a more globalistic law. And now we're moving back from the globalistic view back to more of, I guess, our savage, according to Kant, back to our savage lawless freedoms. Yep, <laughs> it, it really is. Yeah. It's kind of it's an ebb and a flow. It's a give and a take. Yeah, and I think that uh, you know, Kant got it right here. That that uh, as long as you are pursuing your strictly national interest, self interest, uh, without the g- regard to what the interests of others are, yeah, you're going to lead to conflict. Uh, and so um, after World War II, we we saw just how horrible that could be. The kinds of atrocities that could be committed when uh, when people are just pursuing self-interest yeah. on the national stage. Right. Um, and we afterwards, we started negotiating an array of really important international agreements, multilateral agreements that brought in the whole world, you know, the IMF, the WTO, um, opening up free trade, opening up human rights rules. Um, but now we're starting to shift back that. We're starting to see um, um, a backtracking. And I think it's because people are starting to suffer from and they're starting to uh, criticize the kinds of free trade that we're seeing, the free trade that, that yeah. harms domestic uh, producers. Was it the recession? Do you, I mean, was the recession like the tip of the – was it the tip over point where all of a sudden – because we have since World War II been kind of expanding, trying to improve the entire world, you know, still while making sure we're trying to take care of some of our home needs. But um, – and then all of a sudden, was it we falling into a recession that tipped it? What happened? Yeah, it is interesting uh, looking at the timing of it. Um, the recession, you know, started 2007, 2008, and it's actually been a while since yeah. then. So 10 why years take- <laughs> later, but it almost seems like that's how long it takes to move this carrier yep. to that's reverse right. the direction. That's right. And Obama, of course, incumbents have an advantage, yeah. so maybe he stay- stayed around because of the incumbency advantage. Um, but but I do think that the recession ha- plays a part in it. When people are suffering, when people are suffering economically, they get angry. They say, well, what's going on? How can we change this? Uh, and one easy way to, to look at that is say, well, look, foreign – Foreign countries are taking advantage of us. Mm-hmm. They're importing their goods at you know less than less than fair price. Their right. workers are working at you know below minimum wage. How can we ever compete with that? And they, there's a truth to that. No, you right. can't compete with, or well, many countries, many industries can't compete with industries abroad that are working at much yeah, cheaper rates. Especially yeah, one for one. Yeah, you're not going to maybe man- manufacture the same way that they can manufacture at the same price. So it would mean innovation. It would mean we have to retool. We we. But maybe too, it seems like um, it's it's an interesting thing because you have people crying that this isn't fair. Let's bring it back to the states. But there's a certain part of that that's not realistic in that you're not going to bring the same manufacturing back to the same area. So is it naive to think just shutting the ba- the borders and closing everything down is going to make it all better? Uh, I think it is naive to think that. Yeah, uh, and it is sort of the the fundamental 
fundamental underpinning of all economics that we gain from trade. That right. That when people focus on their comparative advantage, everyone ends up winning. Um, and to say that we should always focus on the past industries and not shift to new industries, uh, areas where we do have comparative advantages, um, is, uh, is I think, naive and, and Yeah. Do you, do you sense some of this is – I mean, President Obama was a global kind of president. He almost ran his campaign almost globally. I mean, he was getting a Nobel Peace Prize before he was even really in office, and he, he was declaring and having big speeches in Germany, and they still love him globally. But it almost feels like he was so globally focused. President Bush maybe was so globally focused in wars and terrorism uh, that we may have you know, spent 16 or so years forgetting the United States and this is a blowback from that. I think that, 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 that may, there, there may be some truth to that. Um, that said, I don't think that Obama was immune to this instinct. Yeah. Oh, um, he'd felt it too. Yeah. So you look at – I've studied in particular corruption, some yeah. ways in which um, companies are going out and bribing foreign officials for, for business. Right. Uh, and it turns out that actually the U.S. Um, was really aggressive in targeting foreign companies um, when they were doing that. So they were saying, look, um, if you foreign governments aren't going to – force your companies to abide by our laws, we're going to go out and target your company. So the U.S. Um, has actually had a history, in at least in the last 10 to 15 years, of going out and trying to tackle these problems on their huh. own serve, to serve as the global policeman. Interesting. And, and, and taking some of these companies on. Do you, one thing that I, I wanted to bring up with you simply because of your background is we, we hear a lot about uh, a lot of these corporations that have their money offshore or off out of the United States. And so realigning some of the tax laws and the tax benefits, is, do you think that will bring some of this money home? Is, this, is that real, that if we realign some of the tax laws, that, that uh, Apple might actually bring some of its money back? Uh, I think that's likely. If you, if you drop the, the tax rates, it'll at least have a marginal effect on what, where people are keeping their money. Yeah. Uh, it's interesting. I just got back. Uh, Texas A&M has launched a program in Jersey, United Kingdom. Really? This small island. It's a crown dependency off the shore, really closer to France than it is to the UK. Uh, and has long been known as a tax haven, although once you actually start talking to the people, you realize that that's not really what it's about. Yeah. Um, but you do see how people – I mean co- companies are making decisions for tax reasons. And so if you can drop the tax rate, then that may – will change their behavior. Uh, I don't think that's going to solve all the problems about where companies are manufacturing, but it will make a marginal difference. Yeah. Isn't it interesting too – and talk about this for us. We we think it's an international like government global issue – but it really could also be an international business issue. I mean, businesses in a way are really more fluid than countries ever are, and they're operating everywhere. And I guess bribing some, cheating others, lying and stealing to some, and just operating great business in other places. So is it a business problem or is it a, a global political problem? Yeah, it's a little bit of both, but I do think that you can underestimate – or people often underestimate the importance of business here. Yeah. Because if you look at – after the climate accord, uh, after the Trump announced that he was withdrawing from the climate accord, a number of really prominent businesses yeah. came out and said, well, you know what? Uh, if the government isn't going to abide by these rules, then we will. So Amazon yeah, came out, Microsoft, Apple, Google, they all said, we are going to do our best to abide by the Paris Climate Accord, even if our government doesn't obligate us to. Okay. So but that is, is that not just code by all of these companies talking to the international world? We're still with you. Even if our country looks like it's turning away, we're all here for you. Yeah. And, and it makes you realize just how international these companies are. Wow. Because these companies see, well, look, we're going to be doing business. 
abroad. We're going to have subsidiaries and all around the world. Yeah, we don't want to get into a, a trade war. That's bad for us. Yeah, right. Um, How weird because a company used to. I mean, GE was America, GM was America, but Ford was America. But um, maybe Facebook isn't. You know, Facebook's a world company. So can a president expect their loyalty as a company? That's an interesting dilemma. Yeah, I mean, it's a fascinating problem. I, um, when I was in private practice, I worked on a, a number of transactions that were called inversion transactions, where basically companies that were headquartered in the U.S. would merge with a foreign company and then invert and, trans- and, and turn into that foreign company's headquarters. Oh, interesting. So, so they would leave the U.S., become incorporated somewhere else, and therefore, as a result, reduce their taxes by a significant amount. Interesting. Uh, so you do wonder about, when you do those kinds of transactions, you wonder about, well, where do the loyalties lie? Uh, and business law has a lot to say about that. Uh, it's all about the shareholders. Uh, wow. Plus, these leaders also, so they really are playing an international game. I mean, our current um, Secretary of State was the head of Exxon and um, was was an international player in the world. And yet they – it's such an interesting thing. Uh, Mark Zuckerberg running Facebook, which is an international global company that has global reach, Google leaders, they have global reach. And yet they, they, um, they also want to inject themselves in politics in the United States. Yep, that's right. Yeah, so uh, it is a big, it's an important it's question. It's a complicated issue. You oftentimes um, think of companies, uh, or, or, or many, many people will, will pitch companies as, well, what they're really trying to strive for is profit here, and they don't care about yeah. uh, government and um, their employees. But actually, when you look at what they're doing, oftentimes that they are doing, they are, they are creating a good change that we need. Uh, and at least in this um, climate court, it looks like they're, they're doing a great job of pushing towards um, sort of cooperative behavior. Well, and it seems like they might be doing a better job, at least statistically, than our Congress, our politicians. Yeah. I mean, they've got a higher rating probably. Is, is there a day that you see that um, the sway of the government won't be as large as flat out the sway of the combined business leaders? Yeah, and we may even be seeing that today. I mean, just look at the, the makeup of our government. Many of them come from business, and so they, they're obviously very powerful. Uh, many, con- many, many companies have greater uh, revenue than countries. True. Um, so they, they have a tremendous sway in international affairs, uh, and it will only increase as, as, more, as companies get bigger, larger, and more powerful. And what happens when – I mean, we have kind of a corner on the market of a lot of these companies because they're coming from here. What happens when China is the one that really owns Google? And or not owns it, but it came from China, and all of a sudden, a Chinese organization has access to all every single bit of your data and your information. Yeah, and China presents a particularly difficult problem here because many of the Chinese companies have close ties to the government uh, in a way that does not happen regularly in the United States. And so you wonder about whether they're really pursuing sort of the business interest or whether they're pursuing another interest, a government interest. What do you suggest as we wrap up, William? What do you suggest we do? I always kind of like to just go back to the average Joe, some guy in middle America. What do I need to worry about and what should I be – paying attention to and maybe, you know, making sure that I'm being proactive in? Uh, well, I think that for the, um, for the average Joe, I think that the key here is to be aware of the problem of 
uh, of shifting towards a too self-interested, too nationalistic approach to politics. Um, when, when you see that world coming about, uh, I think you have to take a step back and say, look, is this really the world we want to live in? Um, can we get ahead through cooperation or can we get ahead through self-interested, hard-edged negotiation? And I think that um, time has shown over and over again that cooperation is the answer. Yeah. And, and don't be naive and don't just buy the latest talking point that this is just going to be good for America. Go research it. Go right. figure it out. William Magnuson's his name. Again, uh, Texas A&M University law professor. You can find out more. Just Google him. William, is there any other way to reach you that's, uh, that you want us to know? Uh, yes. Uh, if you go to the Texas A&M website, I have uh, uh, my bio and all the information. Have you been rated by all the students? Are you a hot pepper? I don't think I'm on rate my professor. <laughs> <laughs> I, ho- I hope not yet. Yeah, not yet, William. All right, William Magnuson, thank you so much. Appreciate your time. Thank you. We will take a break, come back, and wrap up hour number one of the show. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We're trying to help you be a good uh, world global citizen as well as a great American. So stick with us. Welcome back, friends. It really is. It's such a it's such a complex problem that we're running into, and it it hasn't, I guess, hit me as deeply. The power of these global organizations and companies. I mean, we know Google's big, and we know how powerful it is, but it's almost like now the world has to deal with Google as if it's a country, not just a company. And will there be a day where? Forget countries. It's all going to be about who owns the companies that own the majority of the revenue, the cash flow, the movement of money. Anyway, interesting stuff. Um, One of the things uh, we like to do on the show is – and and Terry – normally we would right now just ask Terry a question about uh, Marvel Comics. Yeah. And then he would go off for three minutes. But we're not going to do that today. Why not? Uh, because I know you, you want to talk fidget spinner. Fidget spinners. Because you love them. They're disrupting the market. What market? Just toy markets. Are they really? They are because they were, they've hit the, they've become popular. Yeah. There's no TV commercials. There's no local toy lines yeah. in the in country. All of it is they become popular and then the Chinese supply chain spins into gear and they start flooding the United States with fidget spinners. So now events, which is running the rest of the toys, maybe a Barbie, out the door. Well, not necessarily out the door. They're just topping them in sales at the moment. If you look on Amazon at their, yeah. uh, what, their top 20 most popular toys at the moment, they're all fidget spinners. Really? But is this like Pokemon Go, which will just fade? It'll probably. It's a, it's a, it's a fad. I mean, you, 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 you're, you even bought into the hover boards. Yeah. which was a, a big thing. And then they started exploding, and that might have made them ours. more popular. Who yeah. knows? Then you sold yours. Yeah. But uh, it says, in each case, when you have these sort of viral gadgets, the Chinese supply chain spins into gear, floods the market with product as soon as the trend emerges and before big business could corner the market. Thanks to companies like Amazon, Alibaba, Facebook, and Google, Chinese manufacturers can now reach American customers without the traditional middlemen hmm. and without the need for expensive advertising campaigns. So you'll, you'll start seeing other stores and companies in the U.S. trying to get ahead of it. Yeah. So they can actually get them in the stores. Oh, you see signs on the side of the road now at gas stations and all kinds. We have fidget spinners. Right. And, 
a uh, grocery store near my home started selling them and then immediately put out a recall because they bought some bad spinners <laughs> from China and they started falling apart. But uh, all products in the U.S. must comply with product safety standards. Man, alive. That no, is. There's no product safety testing on these items. No, they just show not. up. No. And, and boy, to think that in a second, all of a sudden, we're flooded with them and billions of dollars are now being made. Plus, billions of lives are being ruined <laughs> globally. Crazy stuff, folks. Uh, that's the global take. We'll take a break, folks. Coming back, this is The Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to the program. Dr. Matt here. Hey, if you missed our first hour, go check it out on iTunes, on TuneIn, on Stitcher. Go to BYURadio.org. Go check out MattTownsend.com. It's everywhere. Come on. When we have it posted. Yeah, when we have it posted in a, in an hour. Two, After the show. Three hours. <laughs> but go there. Yes, please. Go, you can go check out all of our old uh, kind of joyfully stacked past shows. There's quite a few. Because we've, we've done – You can rate and review and leave a, leave a message for us and just really help us out. Or not, and you could just go listen to 20 of them. Any way, any, any way you want to do it, it's, it's, it's there for you. But really, uh, like 1,200 or so shows you could go sort through and find some topic that you need a little bit more help on. Today we're going to be talking about anxiety and how it really is just a part of your human nature. This is what humans are. They're a little anxious. You should feel a little anxious. Some more than others. Yeah. But like if, if, if I if – I, I always joke that if I was sitting on your chest – you should feel a little anxious. Like, what's this guy doing on my chest? Because I'm going to stop you from breathing. Right. It makes you anxious. If you have the chance to go start a new company and you don't know if you should make the decision and you're struggling, that anxiety is telling you something like, hey, you may not want to miss this. And it's a moment to make a big decision. So our guest will talk about how anxiety is part of human nature and why we um, why we've evolved, I guess, to have such a have this little bit of tension in our lives. So we'll talk about that interesting topic. Also, we will be getting to um, some empty news. And today, we're, we're not just celebrating anything. We're not celebrating the day before Comey testifies before the Congress. Right. Today, we're celebrating Chocolate Ice Cream Day, mm. which is going to be even better than Comey's testimony tomorrow. Which apparently isn't going to be as good as once thought. Of course. Because he's going to come right to the limit but not actually accuse certain people of obstruction of justice. Yeah. He's just going to give you the details of what happened and not try to give a verdict of what that means. Boring. Yeah, come on. Point fingers. Yeah. See, we, we want this to like turn into a Judge you, Judy. Have you seen what the segment. coverage is going to be? No, so but you have crazy. Every cable network, of course, will yeah. go live. All the major – all the you know CBS, ABC, NBC, all of them are going wall-to-wall. It will be really? live coverage. They bring all their big people, big names yeah. out. And yeah. There's 
There are uh, restaurants and, and different establishments in D.C. that are going to open just early to, so people can come in and, like, turn this into, like, the Super Bowl, I guess. Holy and, cow. <laughs> like, must-see TV. Which means it's going to be very disappointing. Yeah. What's going to come out of it? People are going to go, oh, well, that wasn't as good. I have a feeling it, it somehow will get politicized. No way. No, I bet. I Trump's going to live tweet? Oh, <laughs> Is he really? That's what he says. The, your president is going to be caught up live tweeting for what could be six hours, Maybe. eight hours. Just clear his schedule so he can watch TV. I also heard there that he doesn't want to politicize it, so he won't take uh, like politically biased questions. Wow. Okay. So anything that is swayed one side to the other, he just wants to he, tell. He does realize his story. this is Congress, right? Yeah. You get the people that come in and they're. You, you know, when Hillary Clinton mm-hmm. was in front of Congress, she had the Democrats talking about how great she was. And yes. the Republicans were like hair on fire yeah. screaming at her. Spawn of darkness. Yeah. Yeah, they're not going to. So they're that. not going to take those questions. Yeah, he's he's hmm. not because he, this also could then be spun. Well, what about Hillary and Russia? Oh, OK. Well. I mean, so everyone's thinking or whatever. They yeah. don't want it. He doesn't want to get into that. I think he's more just wants to give his testimony. But they also want all of the notes. And the, then, the mythical notes. The mythical notes. And the then memos. those notes will help them determine what questions to ask. Oh, wow. Because he, he may leave certain parts out of his notes. Hmm. Like, I mean, maybe he says something like, boy, what a wonderful, cordial man Donald Trump is. He's he like, may leave that out. Of his Trump notes. had a nice tie on. Yeah. It had some masking tape on the back. <laughs> on the but back. It was good. Yeah, or the discussion about, hey, so where do you tan? <laughs> Who, what, what spray tan number do yeah. you use? Like that. Orange number three. <laughs> so we'll uh, we'll be covering that, I'm sure. Plus, of course, the empty news, um, some crazy headlines that uh, you're not going to want to miss. Uh, ramen noodles in, is is in one of the headlines. Is it ramen or ramen? I think it's ramen. Really? I hope I've so. heard people say it both ways. One of them is everybody ramen. loves ramen. Really? Do they? It yeah. depends. Top ramen. Uh, So we'll get to all that fun. But first to Terry with the uh, headlines around the country. What's going on, Terry? So Uber, the car ride sharing services, had some very difficult weeks and months with different situations going on. One of them on Tuesday, Uber announced in a meeting in its San Francisco headquarters that it had fired more than 20 employees after a workplace culture investigation. Should we, do we need uh, to have a workplace culture investigation You here? know what? I have a feeling it wouldn't Could work. Could we benefit from that? I'm sure. It just, yeah, it's the, hard. The investigation led by international law firm Perkins Coy, C-O-I-E. Is it Coy? Yeah, sounds right. Perkins Coy. Like, I'm supposed to go, oh, wow, look at that. Perkins Coy. Uh, was launched after the Uber engineer Susan Fowler wrote a blog post in February accusing the company of failing to respond to allegations of sexual harassment and gender discrimination. Two board members responded by insisting there were no systemic issues of harassment at Uber. In the investigation, Perkins Coy examined t- uh, 215 claims of harassment and discrimination. Action was not taken on, over, or on 100 of those cases. The names of the terminated employees have not been released. Uber CEO Travis Kalanick, uh, Kalanick also commissioned a separate probe by former Attorney General Eric Holder. The findings from that investigation have not yet been made public. Hmm. So initially people said nothing's, nothing's wrong here, nothing to see, move along. Move and then along. they fired 20 people. Wow. Yeah, so we'll see what, so this, something's there. what this goes. Uh, an auction for a well-heeled fans of Warren Buffett to eat lunch with the billionaire in support of a San Francisco charity that helps the homeless 
and, and impoverished got off to a fast start with bidding quickly hitting. How much, Matt? How much to eat lunch with Warren Buffett? A million dollars. Well, it hit a million dollars really fast. So the bidding started Monday as of 1 p.m. on Monday. It had been up to a million dollars. It made it within two minutes of the auction Sunday night launch. Made it to the million. Bids often surge near the end of the eBay auction, which includes uh, concludes Friday at 1030 in the evening, uh, Buffett, the chairman of Berkshire Hathaway Inc., has raised $23 million in 17 years of auctions for Glide, which is the charity. So over the years, having lunch, $23 million have been spent to sit Crazy. down and hang on. Well, that includes $3.4 million from last year's winner, a woman who chose to remain anonymous, tying a record set in 2012. Other winners have included Ted Welsher, a, hun- a hedge fund manager who paid $5.2 million to win two auctions and later became one of Buffett's investing deputies at Berkshire. So he got a job after See, two lunches. See, that's why they want to do it. But you, he, had, he had a $5.2 million buy-in to get a job with, <laughs> with Warren Buffett. Unbelievable. In other news, Bo, uh, Square Bob, Square, or SpongeBob SquarePants, the new musical based on the hit Nickelodeon cartoon series, will begin Broadway previews November 6th. Really? With an official opening night set for December 4th. In the musical, SpongeBob and the citizens of Bikini Bottom must rally to save their undersea world from total annihilation. <laughs> so it's like the cartoon. While the show's score is compromised of songs are comprised of songs by an impressive roster of pop and rock hit makers. SpongeBob is not a jukebox musical. Each song in the musical was written specifically for a moment in the plot. The list of songwriters includes Steven Tyler and Joe Perry of Aerosmith, Sarah Bareilles, The Flaming Lips, John Legend, Lady Antebellum, Cindy Lauper, Panic at the Disco, wow. Plain White Tees, They Might Be Giants, uh, T.I. apparently is going to rap something in the middle of all this, and there's a song by uh, David Bowie. Wow. So that's the list of people that are going to sing in the SpongeBob SquarePants, the musical. Well, it, it actually, yeah. The music sounds better than the actual movie. movie or, or the play. the play, yeah. yeah. Huh. We'll see. <laughs> so, uh, and finally, among Catholics, John Don Bosco is revered as the patron saint of editors and publishers, school children, magicians, and troubled youth, which is kind of a weird cluster of things to yeah, be a saint. Yeah, totally. Uh, but in... Castle Nuova Don Bosco, a municipality of northwest Italy, he is revered as a native son and a spiritual hero whose 19th century ministry to children and the disadvantaged youth was so well regarded that Pope Pius XI canonized him in 1934. He, on a regular basis, pilgrims flock to the mass of Don Bosco Basilica, which overlooks the municipality renamed for the saint. It's where a glass-covered reliquary, which is a container for relics, mm was said to contain a tiny brain fragment from the beloved spiritual figure. Huh? A piece of his brain is in a box in a church in Italy. Ugh. During the weekend, after a group of pilgrims had left the area, a thief stole the reliquary. What? So they Who? stole the box with his brain in it. Has anybody seen Don Bosco's brain? Police set up roadblocks, quickly tried to analyze video in hopes of nabbing the robber, but to no avail. Now pilgrims are praying for the relic's return. Shock and outrage surround theft to St. John Bosco's brain, blared headlines on The Crux, which is a popular Catholic online publication here in the U.S. The Archbishop of Turin appealed to the thief to return the relic immediately. Seriously? Someone stole his brain. What kind of of money do you think a a saint's brain gets on the open market? Oh, it's, I mean, there's big money. Big money and brain? That's the, that's, I mean, it's sad. All these people now have lost... This 
this piece yeah. of Don Bosco. Literally. This is the problem with, I guess, being too deeply seated in your relics mm. because then I mean, they can be stolen. Then what do you do when right. your faith, the relic your faith is in is gone? Who would buy this piece of brain? What would you do with it if you, was it like a well somebody that I don't know what would you use a that believer for? that believes in this saint? Is it a paperweight? No, it, no? You, you use it to like improve your business or your. You can't show it off to anyone because no. uh, pe- people Keep that would have pocket. any idea what it is would probably also figure out that it was yeah. stolen, and you well, have it. How weird when you're finally arrested and they're like, "Hey, what's this in your pocket?" <laughs> Nothing. Looks like a brain in a box. Yeah, it is. That's sad. I feel bad for him. And then you feel bad for the guy that's out there on the market trying to sell this thing. Yeah. I mean, how do you advertise? Yeah. Well, we wish him the best. We really do. (laughs) Hey, a woman arrested for hitting a boyfriend in the face with ramen noodles. Does it give any flavoring options? No, it it doesn't. Uh, uh, Deputies arrested a woman accused of hitting her boyfriend in the face with a package of ramen noodles. Happened back in 2015. So the news is a little old. So it was a pack. Uh, Yeah. According to police report, the 29-year-old Channing Benson was arrested on May 24th. The victim, Anthony Mobley, apparently he's probably healed by now. Possibly. Uh, called Wounds the sheriff's deep, office though. when his live-in girlfriend walked into his job at a local convenience store and began yelling at him and um, to bring food home for her and her children. He told Benson that he'd be off in an hour and would bring some food home. According to the police report, she suddenly picked up a package of dry ramen noodles and threw them at him, hitting him on the left side of his mouth, causing a small laceration. Hmm. She She attacked him with... A package of ramen noodles. The story, I think, even though it happened in 2015, I think it's coming up now because it went to court. Yeah, now they're in court. But, I mean, better than better, I guess, would you rather be hit by a package of noodles or just a big wad of noodles that are cooked? Right. This is dry. This is just in the yeah. pack. It's it's cleaner this way. It's a cleaner deal. Yeah. I'm sure you know what it was. It was the beef noodle. Yeah. Because no one wants the beef noodle. No. Those are the ones people throw. Is that what it is? Yeah. I don't know if I've ever had Top Ramen. You haven't? No. That's how Cole lives. You didn't go to college, Terry? I did, you, but I didn't How did eat you get ramen. through college? I ate, like, food. What did you eat? I don't know. Some people call ramen food. I think it officially counts. It, I it's, think it's food until you put the flavor pack in, and then it officially is not food. It's now like a chemical experiment. Well, but so then there's no difference. So if she just whacked him over the head with the raw... Like hard noodles, there's yeah. no flavor to it. It's not flavored until you put the flavor packet well, in, in it. Unless she used like the spicy flavor packet, right? And then he gets hit, and then that flavor gets in his eye, and his eyes burning. Right. So there's See, strategy in this. Issues you yeah. bonk him over the head with the hard noodles, and then you open the flavor packet and throw it in his eyes. I, and I think you guys are overthinking this. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if I've ever eaten a like taken a packet. It's just of a ramen fight. <laughs> ramen. No, no. What's funny? What I found interesting looking at a pack of ramen. Is that the ramen itself? The brick is like fat free because it's just noodles. No, but it's it, everything free. But like it's nutrition free. But like the, no. the fat and everything shows up once you take this little flavor packet and dump but it into the mix. Isn't there fat in the noodle? Not as much as the like the end product. What I'm saying is that little yeah. pack is just fat and salt. It's a fat packet, salt packet, and a brick. It's a pretty neat little deal, and it saved a lot of students. Mm. It's true. Plus, it gives my son a boost in self-esteem because he thinks he can cook. 
You toss an egg in it, all of a sudden you're emerald. Like you've done something. <laughs> Bam! Bam! <laughs> emerald Lagasse. Okay, good stuff. Um, talk about anxiety. Listening to you guys talk about that fight, that got crazy. My heart rate started racing. Up next, we're going to be talking about how anxiety is part of human nature, folks. There's, um, there's some benefits to it as well. You may not want to just throw it all out. Anxiety. Up next, stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. You know, it's natural to experience anxiety, but we we may be giving it too much power over us when it keeps us from acting on our principles, our commitments, our dreams. Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard said that whatever uh, whoever learns to be anxious in the right way has learned the ultimate. And uh, he, he went on to address how anxiety can be to our advantage and help, can help us regain our freedom here in life. Also help us be, uh, fulfill our dedication and our, our more important missions to God as well. Here to talk with us more about Kierkegaard's theories is Dr. Peg O'Connor, a, profos- a professor of philosophy at Gustavus Adolphus College, and we're honored to have her, have her here. Dr. O'Connor, thank you so much for being with us today. Matt, thanks for having me, and please call me Peg. Peg, this was—I loved this article, Peg, about—I didn't know this much about Kierkegaard, um, but anxiety, you're saying, is—it's natural. It's, it's just part of human nature. It's part of what it means to be human, according to Kierkegaard, because human beings are uh, a synthesis of infinity and possibility, and we are— body and we are soul and mind and anxiety is a consequence of our being really out of whack hmm. kind of in that space in more colloquial terms but that's really what Kierkegaard was saying that we attend to too much of one side of those divisions rather than the other and, and we do it at our own peril interesting so that space between I guess you called it mortality or Kierkegaard did mortality and in, infinity and that space induces us into a state of anxiety. It does. I mean, what, what Kierkegaard is getting at is that we are finite beings. Our life here will end on Earth. But we're also infinite beings in that Kierkegaard's belief is that we have soul, we have spirit, we are connected to God. And when we perhaps pay too much attention to the finite side of our living... We don't pay enough attention to our spiritual side. And I think Kierkegaard would say we might at times pay too much attention to our spiritual side and forget that we have very real material needs that we need to attend to, real commitments as well. How fascinating. I mean, really, because um, people that, you know, are believers, that believe in in God or in this higher power, I notice that many times they struggle not even just as much, sometimes even more so with balancing anxiety. I, I think we all struggle with anxiety. And, you know, so part of my work on Kierkegaard comes out of my work on addiction. It also comes from my great love of Kierkegaard. Um, But so many of us struggle with that, but say, for example, people who are addicted and who have worked their way into recovery get to ask that question, get to confront that question 
face on. In, in many ways, it's a blessing to be able to say, how am I in the world? How am I showing up in the world? And how am I attending to both my very real commitments to these people right here and also taking side or taking care of the spiritual side of life? Man. It's an opportunity. So if somebody wanted, uh, just as a side note, to get more into Kierkegaard, what, what, would they, what should they be reading? What would be a good place to start? Oh, gosh, what would be a good place to start? Um, Kierkegaard is, is both a beautiful writer and he's completely confounding. What's really interesting about Kierkegaard is he really meant for his work to be read aloud. Um, I think one of the really fascinating pieces that he ever wrote is a book called Fear and Trembling. Hmm. And that's a book in which Kierkegaard, he, he used uh, pseudonyms many times when he wrote. He was trying to figure out why is it that we call Abraham the father of faith rather than a murderer, hmm. a potential murderer. A potential what, what murderer. What faith look like? You know, God says to Abraham, hey, I know I've promised you're going to be the father of nations, but I want for you to sacrifice your only son, Isaac, and Abraham is willing to do it. And now on the one hand, if someone today were to say, oh, God told me to sacrifice my son, put him on this, you know, offer him up as a sacrifice, I, we, we all would stop and say, oh, no, you don't. <laughs> So true, huh? Yeah, you're crazy. Yeah, what's exactly. the difference between exercising faith and being a potential murderer? Right, and, and Kierkegaard is interrogating that line, trying to figure out how did Abraham come to believe, knowing that it was fully impossible that if he were to sacrifice his son Isaac, he would not have a family line. He yeah. would not be the father of nations. All the while believing that in the very act of sacrificing Isaac, he would get them back. And so one of the ways that Kierkegaard describes faith is it is absurd. It, it, it means you have to embrace paradox where you know something absolutely positively is impossible, and yet it will happen. And hmm. that's part of the reason why Kierkegaard to find God as infinite possibility. Wow. Isn't that... He is profound and unbelievable. He is profound. I love Kierkegaard. He scared the pants off of me <laughs> in undergraduate, and I wouldn't read him for about 20 years, and then I went back to him, and, and I have fallen in love with philosophy all over again, in part through Kierkegaard. Now you can't get enough. Now I can't get enough. Well, and it seems interesting, Peg, because um, you even have kind of, you've been calling it Kierkegaardian anxiety. There's this, uh, that quote I read earlier about whoever has learned to be anxious in the right way has learned the ultimate. Um, so there really is, I, we talk about it a lot on, on the show about there's a good stress, a you stress, and there's just kind of an unhealthy stress. And so is that what they're talking, is that what Kierkegaard's talking about is when you learn to handle the balance of the paradox of, uh, kind of the mortal and the infinite, um, then you've actually found the ultimate blessing. I think Kierkegaard would agree with this, but you might make yourself really miserable in the process of trying to find that balance. Yeah. And in many ways, Kierkegaard would say of himself, he never did find the balance. Hmm. And he admired all of those who could, but he, he couldn't understand them because he himself couldn't do it. Powerful. Um, talk about some of the signs that we might be suffering this uh, Kierkegaardian anxiety. One of them you mentioned is we, we just become less able to prioritize. We, we really can't make decisions. 
Yeah, I think that's one of them. And in part, Kierkegaard would say that that kind of anxiety that goes sideways on us makes us unable to decide or commit and therefore to take action in any kind of way. So this is not a technical term, but we all know what it means. The person who dithers all the time, Mm. you know, who just can't commit, oh, I really want to do this work project, or, oh, I really want to kind of turn my life in this kind of direction, but I can't do that until I get all these other things put into place. And I think that's why, too, procrastination can be a form of that kind of anxiety. And Kierkegaard describes procrastination as, as the gap that exists between what you want to do and what you're willing to do. And that willing to do means taking action. But procrastination can look really like busyness. So there's a joke in, in grad school that, you know, you're, you're writing your dissertation, but you keep saying, oh, I need to read this one more book, or I need to read this one more article. And then before you know it, three or four years have passed, mm. and you have yet to write that dissertation. So procrastination, I, I love this image from Kierkegaard. Kierkegaard is wonderful to read for his images. He describes procrastination as sewing without tying the knot on the end of the thread. <laughs> so you make all the motions. You keep pulling that needle through yeah. the fabric, but you haven't actually, for example, sewn up the tear in your pant leg. It's still there, but you've been really busy making all the <laughs> motions. And, and that's anxiety. That's a consequence oh. of anxiety. And it's exhausting, isn't it? Oh, because yes. you, feel, you feel like exhausted because you've been working. It's just not getting you anywhere. It's not getting you anywhere. And then, you know, one of the other things that I, I write about is then therefore feeling like I am a failure. And not just I'm a failure, but I'm a moral failure. I must not be the type of person who can get things done. There must be some kind of flaw in me that I never seem to finish projects, or I can't make up my mind, or I, I second-guess myself all the time. And it becomes this really toxic feedback loop. Mm. Is it, um, I, I, guess, I guess, by consciously looking at it and understanding that we meet some of the criteria, I guess that will, that will inform us that we need to deal with it? I mean, what's the benefit of, of uh, knowing the signs of anxiety? I think in, you first have to know the signs in order to try to do things differently. And I think what happens, to go back to that closed feedback loop, that just becomes the normal for me. That's just how I am in the world. I think, oh, it's my character type or it's my personality type. And you can't interrupt that feedback loop. But when you begin to identify, oh, wait a minute here, I, mm, I know I'm procrastinating or I'm dithering or I'm afraid to commit, it gives that opportunity to say, okay, what's going on? I mean, what's bothering me here? What's holding me back? Why do I seem to... I mean, that in pop psychology, I know they talk a lot about self-sabotaging, but... I would go back to Kierkegaard and say Kierkegaard has one of the most robust accounts of self-sabotage and all the different forms it could take. But I think a lot of people don't even recognize that they're self-sabotaging. Oh, it's so true, isn't it? And and again, it, the, and these are good, normal, everyday people that yeah. are even maybe productive to, to a point, but they're oh, just yeah. not becoming – they're not offering their best offerings. I think that's right. And, and I think that's one of the other tensions that – Kierkegaard talks about is actuality versus potentiality. So, for example, you know, someone who 
this is a bad sports metaphor. So whenever I make a bad metaphor, I just own it right <laughs> yeah, away. Yeah, you just get it but, out there. You know, so, I mean, you encounter some athletes who have natural talent, and they say, oh, my gosh, this kid has all the potential. He could go to the major leagues. You know, it's all potential, potential, potential. Potential is great, but potential can be very cruel when it's not actualized. Hmm. So the only way you become, say, a professional baseball player, natural talent isn't going to get you on the diamond in the major leagues. Hard work is what's going to get you there. Hard work honing what might be a natural talent. You've got to take the actual steps to acquire the skills. But, you know, in some ways I, I, I always feel I get worried about people who have so much natural potential. It becomes a burden, particularly if they can't make that potential actual, because mm. then they're going to lapse into another cruel feedback loop of what if. Oh, oh what if. Yeah. Or if only I had just, if I had just done this one thing. Yeah. It really is. And it's, these are all mind games, right? These are the games the mind are playing on us. Oh, yeah. And we all get PhD level in playing these games with ourselves. And we can also play them with other people, which is a whole nother issue. So true. the The games we play with ourselves, yeah, we get really good because... In many ways, we know ourselves really well, or at least we think we know the kind of person we are. And again, that's that feedback loop of, oh, well, I'm a moral failure. I'm a loser. I, you know, I don't work hard enough. I don't do this. Oh, oh, oh. Oh, boy. It's um, – which you can see if all of a sudden that's your thinking process. You know you have potential. You know you're not living up to it. You um, – you kind of uh, procrastinate. You 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 know deep down you have this weakness of not being not acting, not acting on any of this. You really start to second guess. Oh yeah, and I think second guessing that's that's one of the surest signs of anxiety. And in part, I think it traces back to well, I can't trust the decision I made because well, after all, I'm the one who made that decision. Yeah. It's so horrible. It's cruel. Because it really, you're hopeless. Like you, and it is the perfect loop, isn't it? It it, it is. And so that comes back to the question of how do we interrupt it? And, you know, it, it is really hard, but so much of having these feedback loops interrupted is having someone else point them out to you. And that's always a really powerful thing. If someone you trust pulls you aside and says, you know, hey, Matt, I've noticed that, you know, you say you want these things, and yet you're not really kind of taking the steps to to realize them, you have to take that seriously if it's someone who knows you, who loves you, and whom you respect. Hmm. And, and so we, 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 Aristotle has this wonderful image that we are moral mirrors to one another. And if I surround myself with the right type of people with the right kind of moral character who genuinely care for and want the best for me, I trust them, and I'm going to take them seriously when they say, you know, Peg, gosh, your actions these last couple of months, what's going on with you? You're really not being who you are, who you say you want to be. That's Which tells us a lot. We have a big role to play with each other. We do. I mean, it is a profound set of responsibilities that we have for one another. I mean, it is a great source of joy, but it is also an enormous burden and responsibility. And and I think, you know, gosh, I wish there were more venues for having conversations about how are we responsible to and for our friends mm-hmm. and our family members, and even other members of our community, perhaps with whom we don't know a whole heck of a lot. 
and and almost push back a little bit more. I mean, I have a lot of people that that really know that they have somebody in their life that's in this spiral and is really struggling, but they don't they don't mirror back much to that person. It's almost like they don't want to discourage them, but they're already discouraged and they're stuck and they don't know what to do. So they just kind of stay out of it and keep mm-hmm. telling them they're great, but they don't give any right. other help. And, and that's no help. I mean, the wrong friends can help you. And, you know, I'm moving my fingers around in those scare quotes. Yeah. can help you into a really bad state. Oh, it's so true. You know, the other, the other dynamic, though, is that so many people, oh, I don't want to intrude. I don't want to overstep my boundaries. Oh, it wouldn't be appropriate for me to, to you know, say something or intervene here. I mean, I, I wish we had more robust conversations about moral education. And when it is okay to say, look, I know you're probably going to be really angry with me, but right now I think you're messing up big time. And I think a lot of people, they, they have this notion of privacy, which is crucial for sure. I'm not saying it's mm-hmm. important, but I think too many people kind of put up their deflecto shield and say, oh, I don't want to overstep. And that's sometimes when you want to say, oh, you know what? Right. You, you actually have an obligation to overstep here, and it's a convenient excuse not to. And we allow that in all kinds of ways with, with parents and children up to a certain point, and, and we do it perhaps with our closest friends, but I think we have to take more of a or have more of a committed engagement to the well-being of others in our community. I mean, particularly now in a world that, you know, is is just full of intense violence and hatred and insecurity. And people, we may know people around us that have potential for that, but we don't intervene. We don't push back. We don't want to offend. And like you said, yeah, they, they have their right to privacy and they have their right to free speech. And okay, sure. And yet somebody, and really the one closest to them that has the relationship needs to needs to be able to push back. We're speaking with Peg O'Connor, um, who is a professor at uh, of philosophy at Gustavus Adolphus College and is walking us through an article she wrote on how we can use anxiety to our advantage. When we come back, I'm going to talk about uh, with her about anxiety and perfectionism. One of the signs that you may have this Kierkegaardian anxiety is you've turned into a perfectionist. How convenient, and uh, we'll let Peg walk us through why. Why we choose to go that direction when there's already so much stress about making good on all of our commitments. Stick with us, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you uh, see through anxiety and become the best you can become. To the Matt Townsend Show. Joining us on the line is uh, Professor Peg O'Connor. She's a professor of philosophy at the Gustavus Adolphus College and uh, is has a wonderful blog on psychology today that really, it's, it's, it's titled Philosophy Stirred, Not Shaken. You really need to uh, read it. It's so insightful and deep. It's about addiction and philosophy and kind of where the two meet. Um, we appreciate you again being with us. Thanks, Peg. 
Oh, thanks, Matt. I'm, I'm having fun. This is great learning for us as well. Talk about, uh, of all of the things that an anxious person would choose to focus on, a lot of them tend to go for perfection, mm-hmm. which seems it seems antithetical to their real goal, which would be to avoid such pressure. Oh, perfectionism is particularly cruel, I think, in part because it oftentimes springs from the best intentions of, I want to do my best, I want whatever I produce to be really, not just really good, but perfect, because, well, it, it's important and it, and it matters. And so I know, for example, that there are philosophers who are such beautiful writers who write so beautifully and who are so smart and they won't submit an article off to a journal or to a to a publisher because it's not perfect yet mm. and and not having that guideline of you know right now it's good enough so here's what i'm thinking so to be able to say something is good enough is to say it's not perfect and it can be made better. So I, for example, know when I send off a piece somewhere, someone's going to review it and they'll either accept it, they'll reject it, or they'll say, work on it some more. And I know when I send it off, it's good enough right now because some reviewer is going to tell me something that can make it better. Mm. And I can have my eyes on the horizon of what would make it better. Oh, I know this argument is really weak here about this thing. I need help. But with perfectionists, they think that they should be able to do that entirely by themselves. And unless and until it crosses the finish line of perfection, they're not going to let it go. And I think about all the great contributions that get lost, or potential contributions that get lost, because people won't just send them out there in the world. And perfectionism... It's talking about meeting a standard that's impossible to meet by its very definition. But I am probably going to give myself a good talking to or a good kind of psychic whipping because it's not perfect. It's, it seems like the perfect paradigm to not have to turn in your work. So there, there's that there's that perfectionism and procrastination are connected. Yeah. Oh, I know. I'm just going to be able to address this one article that was in this obscure journal that three other people read. I mean, you keep moving your finishing point out there. You keep moving where it is that you say, aha, now it's perfect. Now I've completely done it. It is utterly exhausting. And perfectionist, I think... I think it's a form of self-deception because on the one hand, I maybe understand that I can't possibly make this perfect, but on the other hand, I expect myself to make it perfect, and it can't be made perfect. So, you know, there's an old saw in Alcoholics Anonymous that an expectation is a future possible resentment. (laughs) So what happens when I keep sort of, I now, I might blame other people, but, you know, a lot of people who are perfectionists, it's this weird combination of both having the expectation, well, I am so good that I should be able to do this, while simultaneously believing, but I'm not good enough. Yeah. And I'm not nearly as good as everybody else. And that's exhausting. That that seems to kind of go back and mirror the Kierkegaardian, you know, mentality of the finite with the infinite. Um, And when we think of God and the infinite, we think of perfection. So we're working for this supposed goal, except it's always it's always you know smashing up against our our imperfection and it almost makes us not act 
I guess it just. I, I leaves... think that's absolutely right. I am more than happy to leave perfect, you know, perfect to God. You know. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. <laughs> nope. I'm not getting anywhere near that. Right. However, in my little corner of the universe, I can do things well enough or good enough that I can, you know, keep my side of the street clean. That I can make contributions, and that's what I can do. So what I love about your blog, too, is this um, – it is the paradox. It's the balance of – it's knowing you're a philosopher that has struggled with addiction in your past and um, I guess – or I don't know if – I guess we always struggle with addiction. But you've you've been able to, to bring this reality of the real world into um, kind of, I think, the elegant beauty of philosophy and – is that the reality of all of us, though? We're all just battling our own issues. I think it is. I mean, Nietzsche, you know, a philosopher writing in the late 1800s, someone who was so tormented and had such bad psychological, psychiatric problems, had a breakdown and spent the last nearly 10 years of his life in, you know, what they would call an asylum for the insane. Mm. He said that Suffering is a part of human life. That doesn't make us unique, but what makes us unique is the meaning that we can make of that suffering. How do we transform that suffering? And and I really see that that's one place where philosophy can be really useful for people struggling with addiction or people struggling with other kinds of realities in their lives, that the suffering alone doesn't define us. But how do I make it meaningful? How do I... How do I transform it so that it can be validating of my life and what I do. And I'm always amazed, you know, for example, of people who have been, you know, had terrible things done to them, have been victimized in various kinds of ways and who have survived, the way that they say, and that is what makes me stronger. Mm -hmm. That's what makes me committed to being in the world in these kinds of ways. And, And philosophy helps to do that because it has concepts that help people make sense of things that are just perhaps awful. Yeah. And sometimes it's almost like – and you can see it with a lot of the the ideas you brought up about anxiety. We we stay in the story, but we always keep the story of our inferiority and our weakness instead of turning the story into something that we're conquering or that's making us better. Yeah, and helping to make other people – better as well. I mean, it, it turns out it, it might be a big boat, but we're all in it together. Exactly. And, and yet, and one person's might, issue might be addiction. The other might be uh, procrastination. The other might be, you know, abuse or loss. Everyone's got their their battle and they need to turn it into growth. Yes. Powerful. Because that's how we live. I mean, the nature of human beings, I think, is to grow. I mean, physically we grow, but mentally, psychologically, some would argue spiritually, we grow. Staying the same is not what we do. We're always changing, and we can change for the better. And as Aristotle says, oh, we can change for the worse. Is it? Um, it seems like there is an inherent governing paradigm of control and a need or a belief that you can control and it needs to be controlled and that you can do it is can you can you really control anything really that is a great question so I, 
one of the philosophers I, I teach is Epictetus, and it, in some ways this is where the origin of the serenity prayer is, that mm. they say at Alcoholics Anonymous, you know, give me the ability to see what I can control and what I can't control, and the wisdom to know the difference. And there are some things that are within my control and other things that are not in my control. But again, that wisdom is knowing what I can control and what I can't control. And I think it's a great source of unhappiness when I try to control what's totally beyond my control or try to put things in my control that really aren't. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's some self-deception there as well. If, if I think that I can order the universe, wow, am I totally overstepping what it is that I can do? But, you know, then there's that wonderful Buddhist insight that Stuart Smalley, you know, <laughs> Al Franken on Saturday yeah. Night Live said, it's much easier to put on slippers than it is to carpet the world. I've got control over what I put on my feet and where I walk. So true. So true. What would you advise us um, as we as we end today? I always want to know the one thing. What's the one thing we could do today that would instantly or immediately or more immediately bring us back to the to the ability to see the paradox and maybe balance it in our anxiety? Oh, sure. Save the hardest questions to last. <laughs> oh, you're killing me. I know. Um, there are times when we just need to act, and we act out of habit or we act unthinkingly. But what I think is important to do, and this is me speaking as a philosopher, but as someone who's always, you know, struggled with addiction for a, you know, for a long time, it's always really important to interrupt your decision-making process and not to act always so habitually and so unconsciously or without thought. Hmm. And, and I think once we do kind of slow down the decision-making and interrupt it, well, why, why am I doing this, or why is it that I always do that, that we pay attention to something that has become so familiar that we don't pay attention to it. But when we do, we can see things differently. And I think a lot of it has to do with our thought processes, interrupting that feedback loop. So that would be the one thing. If, 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 if people could, you know, when they see themselves starting to think in ways and act in ways that are so habitual that they know won't serve them well or haven't served them well, that's when you interrupt. Interrupt. You may do the same thing, but you're maybe doing it a little differently or, you know, you start to catch yourself in these thought processes. No, that's huge. I mean, really, and that, talk about a life skill is the ability to interrupt and even to, to allow yourself to evaluate your, your thinking. Some, and think about how weird it is that that would be one of the hardest things we do. No, exactly. Isn't but it, it is. It, it totally is. Peg, you're beautiful. Well done. I appreciate uh, your insights, your learnings. We will. We got to have you back because. Well, I, thanks. I, I'd love to come back, Matt. There are a million a really things. Stimulating conversation. You're wonderful, and we appreciate the, just the hope that you bring as well. Again, uh, Peg O'Connor is her name. She just wrote the article. Anxiety is part of human nature. Uh, you can find it on Psychology Today. Go look up her blog. Philosophy stirred, not shaken. Insights on addiction and philosophy. Powerful stuff. We'll take a break, folks. Come back, wrap up hour number two of the program. Stick with us, helping you be the good in the world. Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Welcome back, friends. Powerful stuff. Uh, 
Who would have thought, man? Soren Kierkegaard. I mean, I'm sure some of you are so much better read than I am, but powerful insights. Um, some quotes from, from Kierkegaard. Life is not a problem to be solved, but a reality to be experienced. Another one of my favorites. Face the facts of being what you are, for that is what changes what you are. Isn't it true that uh, so much of our lives we just, you know, we're just kind of on autopilot, flying through it, never really questioning anything, never evaluating our thinking. We evaluate everyone else's thinking because they're all so messed up. You know, they don't think right. They're not, they're not like you. But we don't question our thinking, and we also don't like people to question our thinking. There's something about, uh, as Peg was talking about, these automatic kind of feedback loops where we need feedback. So ask yourself, are you very good at that? Are you very good at opening up and uh, allowing feedback from others to come in? Because if you're not, then um, what are you missing? What are you not able to, uh, to understand, to learn? What are you not getting about you? And another just little thought that I think is uh, it's essential is um, to think that anxiety really is – uh, this is what Kierkegaard said, anxiety is the dizziness of freedom, right? The freedom you have of wanting to be that infinite being and eventually maybe go live with God, go be back in in the peace and the love of your higher power, but also understanding you're immortal and life is hard. And that freedom, that agency you've been giving induces a state of anxiety. It's normal. It's natural. And it's not the anxiety that matters. It's, I guess, really what you end up doing with the anxiety that matters, what you end up, how you end up acting and processing and getting through it. Interesting stuff. That's, uh, that's why we bring you the show, to give you the tools. We'll take a break, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you manage your anxiety and hopefully giving a little hope out there. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome, friends. Hope you're having a great day as you drive around town. Maybe you're going out to lunch. Maybe you're just getting to work. Hanging out with your family, uh, this is the program that can that can help can help you in each of those areas. We we work a lot on the show to help you uh, be a better leader of your own life, better in your relationships, stronger there as well, and also um, hopefully give you some life skills along the way. Today, no exception, we will be talking about persuasion and lessons in persuasion, uh, replaying a, an interview we did with Lara Vanderkam about the lessons in persuasion, because you, you need to be able to influence people, or they're just going to keep running over you and influencing you. So get skills, get the tools you need. We'll have uh, that interview coming up. Also, um, today, of course, we are celebrating uh, a lot of wonderful celebration, one including chocolate ice cream. Yes. I mean, if you have to pick something to celebrate, uh, don't you think chocolate ice cream should be at the top of the list? Of course. Come on. Uh, of course, I won't be eating chocolate ice cream because that would make my life fun. But uh, instead, health-wise, I'm just going to just have to suffer. Not a big deal. Uh, we are also celebrating Running Day today. Running Month was established to bring those people who absolutely love running 
and all nine of them will be celebrating running day. How are we celebrating? Uh, with a run. When? Isn't that funny? Like, hey, do you want to come do a fun run? No. Isn't I, you can tell that running isn't so loved because they would every run they have to make fun or like with they they have one where a color run where mm-hmm. they throw colors all over There's you. There's a costume and, run. Yeah, yeah costume they try run. to make it mm-hmm. different than just running. You'd think that it, running would be enough for some. Or my my favorite is uh, are you gonna go on this fun run? And I say no, and they go it's for, it's for a good cause, and I go where can I donate money? Let me just, can I'll, I just pay can you? Can I skip the running part or do you have to do both? And I just skip the run. And they do these, uh, what are they called? The cross country ones where you like have a team of six people. Oh, Ragnar. They they do Ragnar races and yeah. somebody from my neighborhood dressed like a Tyrannosaurus Rex. Okay. And ran his leg of the race as a T-Rex. Right. Um, hmm. Doesn't I don't know if that's good form, but it seems like. Having to wear a T Rex costume might yeah. complicate things. Complicate your run. Yeah. Hmm. I mean, but they do have those big legs, so tiny arms, though. Tiny arms, so it's hard to hand the baton off, right? From the T Rex. <laughs> that's uh, that's always hard. Um, we'll get uh, we'll get to that fun this hour as well. Also, uh, what do you do when you need to move forty thousand bees? Call someone else. You just you just gotta you gotta you gotta be careful. So we'll talk to you, tell you a story about how somebody, uh, two beekeepers, in, pa- in fact, safely removed an estimated 40,000 bees Oof. from a townhouse in, in Virginia, hmm. in, case you, in case you need to know how to do that. We'll get to that, plus BYU Sports Nation at the top of the hour. We'll find out what's going to be coming up on their show. We'll do a hero of the day. All of that straight ahead. But to kick it all off, let's get to Terry South with the headlines. Terry, what's up? Freshmen and seniors at about 200 colleges across the U.S. take a little-known test every year to measure how much better they get at learning to think. The results are discouraging. At more than half the schools, at least a third of the seniors were unable to make a cohesive argument, assess the quality of evidence in a document, or interpret data in a table. This according to the Wall Street Journal. Really? Uh, so the exam, it's a latest results examined from dozens of public colleges and universities that gave the exam between 2013 and 2016 at some of the most prestigious flagship universities, test results indicate the average graduate shows little or no improvement in critical thinking over four years. Little to no improvement. Little and we've to talked, no. cause we, we teach them to pass a test, not to critically think. Right. You got to teach them to think. I mean, how many times do we yell that? Think! Mm. Doesn't seem to help. So. Okay. How do you fix that? Well, apparently not going to school. (laughs) So that is the question. Is college the answer? Who knows? Yeah. Boy. Doesn't seem to be showing a lot of improvement here. After years of being uh, cast aside as the less than healthy bread option, white bread may finally get its moment of redemption. What? It's really dramatic. Don't tell me it's healthy. A new study by researchers at the uh, Weizerman Institute of Science in Israel revealed that white bread actually might not be that bad for some people. The team examined how quickly people's blood sugar levels rose when they ate white bread for a week versus when they ate sourdough bread, which had previously been billed as the healthiest of breads. Scientists expected to see blood sugar levels spike more when people ate white bread, when instead they found some people's blood pressure spiked more drastically after eating sourdough bread than eating white bread. So really? it, dep- it looks like it depends on who you are and how Isn't, your body digests see, it. See, in my world, though, sourdough bread is white bread. Yeah. I mean, if we're talking 
nine grain whole wheat. Right. So they're saying our study suggests that in terms of glycemic response, different people respond differently even to the same meal. Yeah. Okay. So having some one rule widespread over the entire population probably won't work. It says the researchers also found no significant difference between the two breads when they examined the microbiomes in participants' guts. Ooh. Yeah. Which Ooh. Is, which is gross. But white nice. bread making a comeback. White bread. White bread. That's cool. That's good. Um, to complete con- to compete in the qualifying rounds for the U.S. Open golf tournament, you sort of need your golf clubs. Which is why one pro golfer is fuming at American Airlines for his now squashed chances to make the cut. USA Today reports that Michael uh, Budakovli withdrew Monday from his latest or his last chance to play in the open sectional qualifiers after the airline couldn't track down a bag containing his clubs with priority tags. The 29-year-old, who's on the PGA Tour Latin America roster, had flown a red eye from Ecuador to Miami and was dismayed to find that even though he made it to, a, er, to his early morning tea time in, at Florida's, uh, this Florida golf club, his clubs had gone missing. Uh, American Airlines offered to help track down his bag in a responded tweet, but he noted that the ship has already sailed. It's too late, he retorted. I already withdrew. You just need to do your job in the first place. The airline tried to apologize, saying this wasn't the experience we had planned for you, but he was having none of it. Stop apologizing. Don't need your sympathy <laughs> or you to be politically correct. Just do better. Wow. American Airlines eventually did find his bag of golf clubs. But it was too late, yeah, and he was not able to even attempt to qualify for the U.S. Open, which was the whole point he was here. Man, man. Boy, saying everything everyone would love to say to the airlines. Yeah, just barking at them. And finally, some some horrible news. What? So this says every jar of Nutella starts with 56 roasted hazelnuts. Yeah. And apparently cancer-causing palm oil. What? According to the European Food Safety Authority, a recent study found that palm oil was linked to an aggressive spread of cancer in mice. The oil is essential to Nutella's smooth texture and shelf life. Well, it's a good thing we're not mice. Food companies (laughs) in Italy have also already begun boycotting the oil. Some grocery stores are taking it off the shelves. Uh, Fiero, the company that owns Nutella, is one of Italy's best-known food brands. They aren't planning on changing the recipe anytime soon. says making Nutella without palm oil would produce an inferior substitute for the real product. It would be a step backward. Well, I mean, they would change it right if it were killing people. No, but it tastes so good, it's worth the risk. The company uses about 185,000 tons of palm oil a year, so switching to another oil would not be easy. Palm oil is the cheapest vegetable oil and costs about $800 a ton, while sunflower oil, for example, costs $845 a ton. But it might not kill you. Well, you know, details. So I'm assuming this is like the palm tree, not the palm of your hand. There you go. Because that's a lot of greasy palms. It says uh, the oil in questioner is also found in chocolate bars, ice cream, cookies, and pizza dough. Okay. Yeah, all things that kill you. Okay. Right. So there you go. Well, see, and now I know why I have a, I have sludge in my gallbladder. I don't um, know if we've talked about this. But you did, yeah. The finding was I have sludge. Right. And I, I said that you might need a fuel additive. Yeah. yeah. So maybe that's it. Maybe it's some palm oil. T- some Tecron. Is that what it's called? That's it. yeah. Yeah, I need... <laughs> The Tecron. I need to go unleaded. I don't know. Your fuel filters are, are plugged. Something's not right. With sludge. 
That's some pretty. I mean, it's really sad because we had we had good news in that white bread may not be as bad for you as right. you think, and then bad news in that uh, Nutella could kill you. Could kill you, which is really bad because I have a son that's favorite meal is white bread with Nutella. Wow. So do you think the good and the bad offset? Yeah, it's it's, so okay. it's back to zero. Nice. Boy, the funny thing about that kid, he's gaining weight like crazy. Why is that? I don't I know. I have no idea. Hmm. I have no idea. Bet you he appreciates the comment on the air. Yeah, I bet, I bet he does. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm pretty sure he's not listening. Oh. Why would my kids listen to me on the radio? They get me all night. I'm 24-7 with my kids. Have they read your book? No. Hmm. Each of them has the book, but I, I honestly don't know if any of my children have read my book. Did you give it like a Christmas gift or birthday well, gift? we or? kind of felt like they would want an original first edition of the book. Okay. So we gave that Is it leather them. bound? Did you sign it? Yeah, I autographed it, hoping that their relationships are like rainbows. Oh, wow. It was really cool. Yeah. And um, but it was like what seven eight years ago I can't remember but it, um, they I'm pretty sure they haven't read it hmm. so I'm about to launch this huge writing endeavor to write a bunch of books mm-hmm. and I then think to myself why my kids won't even read them this is true but then I think of like your wife calling every day Terry and I think mm. I'm going to do it happen. for her no to help she's her. okay she's busy it's not what she said on the call yesterday wow. Anywho, don't want to digress. Anywho. Anywho. Moving along. Hey, uh, if you have to move 40,000 bees, what do you do? By the way, Mm. I'm not going to name his name, but there's a YouTuber that does crazy things. You may have heard of – have you guys ever heard of YouTube? Occasionally, yes. So there's videos of crazy people doing crazy things. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. This guy drank honey with honey bees on his face, like thousands of honey bees. Okay. On his face, and then he drank a gallon of honey. And you won't believe it, but he got sick after. After drinking a gallon of honey? Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. You're pretty much all honey at that point. Oh, yeah. And somehow it made him, his stomach sick. Huh. But I don't think he got stung once. But these people are trying to move 40,000 bees out of a home in Virginia. They call in two beekeepers. Boom. They always start with this music. Yeah. That's their pump-up music. The 40-pound swarm was carefully sniped from a tree branch May 17th in the grassy area of Fredericksburg community in Virginia by 33-year-old Nathan Thompson and his 70-year-old father, Earl. Earl. The, the, of course it's Earl. The two belonged to family of beekeepers spanning three generations. A county animal control officer uh, responded to the outside swarm, but sheriff's office statement described McCall as a self-admitted chicken mm. regarding the bees. <laughs> I ain't going over there. Call Earl. Just stay in my car. Earl can do it. So he summoned Nathan Thompson and his dad, and guess what? They removed the bees, got them into their boxes, and uh, they only had three three bee stings. Huh. And you know what they do with them? They take them home and uh, make money. Make money off them. That's make why they honey and money. But because no one else is going to want that swarm. Why? Do you know how much a swarm is going for? Quite a bit. Yeah. As we hear about these. You know, bee swarm, bee hives being stolen in California. So look what we're learning today. Uh, So far today we've learned ramen noodles are a great defense Mm. if you need to throw them. Right. Um, Bees, you can can move them or you can drink honey and they don't care. Right. I learned that on YouTube. These are true. Well, no, not if you're a professional. Yeah, if you're a professional. Well, that guy wasn't – that guy was just kind of an idiot. 
But um, well, he didn't get stung at all. Nobody the, had the, a beekeeper the, the there. The so-called professionals got stung three times. You said, yeah. Huh. And can I just make another crazy point sure. about life? Um, you know why you're not supposed to smoke? What's more natural than a bee? And bees don't like smoke. It kind of makes them lethargic, mm-hmm. tired. Okay. That's why you don't smoke. Because the guy that was drinking bees with a beard of bees, yeah. he was drinking honey with a beard of bees, he had a beekeeper right there. Right. They just kept smoking them out of his... So they were cheating. They were cheating. Okay. So mm. it's really not impressive is what you're telling us. It's not. They put all, they put all the bees into a lethargic trance before they started the, the project and he didn't get stung at all. So well, how else would you rather? I mean, you want them active, no. maybe aggravated. No, you don't. <laughs> well, I mean, he didn't, we do. It makes for better YouTube. Yeah. You want, uh, it's all about hits on YouTube. Like mm-hmm. you don't really, I mean, personal safety. Come on. That's really not that's a, a great, concern. That's a great point. So you want to get them aggravated and then drink honey. Yeah. Then it's a YouTube now, video. Now, what would have been a great video is the guy that was drinking the honey to go drink the honey in front of that swarm of bees right. without any any help from the beekeepers. That would be funny. Would it? Ow, 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 ow. <laughs> yeah, maybe not. Uh, trial is set for Amish community members over horse droppings. Ooh. They hate manure, folks. Members of an Amish community in Kentucky may take their cases to court after being cited for violating an ordinance requiring horses to wear bags to catch their droppings. Thirteen members of the Schwarzenruber Amish sect in Auburn appeared uh, in court Wednesday and were told their trials will begin August 2nd if they can't settle the cases before then. The defendants belong to a conservative sect that rejects motor vehicles and modern technology and travel by horse-drawn buggy. They believe the bags violate their community's religious standards. Yeah. Hmm. Back in the day, horses didn't have to catch their droppings. Just in the road. See? Yeah. The city says the ordinance is meant to promote safety. A total of 37 cases are pending against 13 people. Wow. It's actually really, if we're honest, it's 13 horses. These people have nothing to do with this. It's those horses. I don't know how you get a horse to wear that bag. But, see, you're going to pay one way or another. Have you been in a uh, horse-drawn carriage? Yeah. Where they had one of those apparatuses? Yeah. The yeah, little baggy. It's kind of gross. And it is just a bag. It's not like we're asking them to like attach a robotic technological no. thing to the back right. of this. And horse. it's like a medical procedure. It's like a, it's, it's like a tarp. Yeah, it's just, it's a bag. just a bag. It's just to keep it off the roads. But you know what? You make it sound like it's just a bag. <laughs> but it's so much. It's like all the other horses are looking. It's about religious freedom. That's really what it's all when about. When you pull that carriage back in to the you know to the stable where the rest of the horses they're all like ah. Look at Larry. He's got a bag. <laughs> He's less of a horse. <laughs> of course. Of course. <laughs> of course. Uh, anyway, uh, just a little update for you. So you didn't. this is stuff you didn't even know you needed to know. But now the Amish are being oppressed by – I'm sure they're just trying to raise money by ticketing them. Oh, yeah. They it's say, a revenue generation project. That's they all it say is for the it's city. for safety issues and concerns. But is it really – I mean, I guess that's true. If you're riding a, a bicycle, that is a safety issue. Absolutely. But it's also a religious issue. Apparently. So we'll keep you posted on that because that could go either way. <laughs> that could get ugly. All right. Um, 
That's all you need to know about that. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we will be talking about lessons in persuasion, how you can how you can influence others more effectively. It's a replay of an interview we did with Laura Vanderkam. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Wouldn't the world be a better place if everyone just saw things your way? Your projects at work could go smoother. Your home and you know world would look cleaner. Your relationships would be easier, right? It just seems like if people just got it like you do. Well, I guess that's the reason you need to try to persuade some people to see things your way. But how can you persuade other people to, to do things that are sometimes hard to do, that they don't like to do? Lara Vanderkam is a writer for Fast Company and the author of several time management and productivity books. And she uh, went straight to the persuasion professionals to find out the answer. She researched the company Food Corps, which is a, a, a branch, I guess, of AmeriCorps. And they, they have been teaching kids to eat their vegetables and to be healthy for years, and they're succeeding doing it. So, Laura, our next guest, went to figure out what it is it that they're doing. What are the persuasion secrets they're using? And she joins us today to discuss her article, Seven Lessons in Persuasion from People Who Get Kids to Eat Their Vegetables. Laura Vanderkam, welcome to The Matt Townsend Show. Thank you for having me. Great to have you. What a fun article um, about persuasion, because really, we all, we all at some point have to you know, lead and persuade others. And um, of all the groups you chose to work with to figure this out, why did you choose Food Corps? Well, I think they do fascinating work. I mean, anyone who is a parent knows how difficult it is to convince young children to eat their vegetables. And we know it's good for them. I mean, we know it's good for us, and we don't necessarily want to do it either. Um, and Food Corps is doing work in schools in underprivileged areas, um, people who may not have been exposed to a wide variety of vegetables before, and they're actually getting kids to try them, in some cases to like them. Uh, They had some research that uh, a number of kids um, had a far more positive view of vegetables after their programming. So I wanted to ask them, well, what are you doing, and what can the rest of us learn from this? That's great. I mean, really, and and then you can uh, then you wrote about it in Fast Company, which is all for businesses and and entrepreneurs. And um, talk about some of the principles. What did you learn from uh, from these creative persuaders? Yeah, well, there are a lot of great lessons for for business from these people who are winning over such tough tough customers. Really, um, some of the most important ones are to really think about involving your customers in the process. Uh, people are so much more willing to do things when they think it is their idea. <laughs> um, and that it, it's human nature. Right. right? If, if we can be convinced that something is our idea, then we are all for it. Uh, so, so Food Corps you know, involves children in gardening and in creating recipes. Um, But certainly this is something other organizations can do, too, in terms of figuring out what your customers really like, give them feedback into it. I mean, particularly if you want to try to pilot things with small groups of 
you know, sort of super fans of your product. Anything you can do to make people feel like they have ownership of the idea is a great idea. Right. And, I mean, even just sitting down, asking them what they need and listening involves them, right? Just that, that helps you understand, but it also involves them because they're explaining what they're looking for. It does. So, so that's one of the great techniques in persuasion. But you also have to sort of meet people where they are. Hmm. Um, it is very difficult to convince someone to try something that seems incredibly foreign uh, to them. Like eggplant. But if you can root it in something that they know, uh, it, it's easier to make that slight leap. And so what the food corps was doing is they would uh, you know, remake dishes that the kids already were familiar with, but make them healthier, for instance. Mm. And, and that was easier for the kids to say yes than if you just sort of served them a giant plate of arugula and said, go for it. <laughs> it's so true, but because they get pizza, they get the idea of pizza. And if you can make it taste good and introduce hummus, then you might, you know, you could always put pepperonis and, or carrots, I guess they did, on the pizza instead of pepperonis. But start where start where their heads are. Start where their heads are. I mean, even a regular pizza with lots of veggies on it would be a, a step in the right direction. Right, right. Is um, did did you so you went in and you did you kind of just follow the the food core people or did you just interview a bunch of uh, people that that had been uh, doing this this teaching process? So I have written about them in the past for other um, publications and have done some following in that sense. Uh, they do incredible work. It's, it's fun to watch them. Um, partly it's that, and this is important for people thinking about persuasion as well, kids love slightly older young people. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah, like yeah. Um, the, the volunteers in this group are like young 20s. So they're really hip to the high school and middle school students they're working with. Um, the, and, and they are also aware of the social dynamics in the schools as well, um, so that if you could get the cool kids to be the ones who are offering you the carrots, you're more yeah. likely to say yes um, than if it's just you know a, a random adult they don't care about. Uh, so, so that's something to think about as well. That's interesting. Instead of like the you know, stereotypical lunch lady that's been there for 30 years, it might be better to have a fun, younger person that makes it fun. Exactly. Or even a, a fellow student, um, that rather than, than the lunch lady offering it sort of with no introduction whatsoever, it's just suddenly on the line. <laughs> um, if she has someone take around trays of samples, I and mean, it's like going to Costco, get little samples and try it, and, you know, walk around the cafeteria and have people try bits and tastes, it, it's a lot easier to get people to say yes. Yeah, I think that's, that really is a great, I mean, and again, in any business, you've, you've got you've to look attractive, right, to the, to the buyer. You have to. I mean, people are not willing to go with stuff that is unpleasant, that is ugly, that is no fun. Um, and I thought it was interesting that, uh, you know, we have this phrase like eat your spinach, which means do something you don't want to do. Right. Right. Isn't that funny? Yeah. <laughs> we have that, that assumption that eating spinach is something you just don't want to do. And so you can't really present it that way, that you should eat your spinach because you have to eat your spinach. So, you know, you want to make your offering fun, beautiful, pleasant. I've seen some, when I've been writing about this topic in the past, I've seen some amazingly creative lunch lines at schools 
where the whole point is to make it look like a gorgeous salad bar. Hmm. Uh, you know, like, yeah, you could have just vats of gross stuff on the lunch line, or you can make it look like something people would really want to eat. Guess which one is more likely to make the kids eat their vegetables? Right. You know what? It's, it's like, wow, you've just landed in heaven, and you can have any kind of beautifully colored fruit or vegetable you'd like. And I, I mean, my kids would still be looking for the donut line, but it, it, it's part of this is, if you understand, if you've done these other earlier steps and you understand your audience and you know where they are, um, you will be able to make the offering more enticing. More enticing, more attractive, more surprising. I mean, if you're going to serve bunches of pizzas of cut up fruit, why not stick them on a little kebab? And it's like, wow, we just got something that's like a popsicle. Yeah, <laughs> you know, right. It's so much more more fun. And, and so, you know, we tell kids, like, don't play with your food, but sometimes there's something to be said for playing with your food or playing with anything that you're trying to convince someone to say yes to. Right. And, I mean, just don't throw your food unless you're catching <laughs> okay, it and yeah, eating it. We're not into that. Yeah, that's good. Let's take a break. We're speaking with Lara Vanderkam, and she is walking us through an article that she wrote, um, Seven Lessons in Persuasion from People Who Get Kids to Eat Veggies. It's at fastcompany.com, and um, it really is. It's just a great idea. If you're trying to be more persuasive, these tips that Lara picked up from Food Corps, which is a, an organization trying to get kids and succeeding, by the way, to get kids uh, to try new vegetables and eat vegetables. Um, these lessons, these lessons are universal. They'll apply in your family, in your work, everywhere. So uh, stick with us. We'll come back. Continue to learn the seven tricks and lessons in persuasion. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Stick with us. to the Matt Townsend Show. Persuasion, uh, it's everywhere. It's every part of our lives we are going to have the opportunity to, to influence somebody and persuade them to do something. In fact, it sells 101, right? But it's also parenting. It's getting your kids to eat their veggies. Sometimes it's getting them to just do their homework. And there's many ways to do it. Some of them, by the way, are much more efficient, we think, like yelling is going to be efficient because that'll get them to do it immediately. The problem is I remember not wanting to eat my veggies while sitting at a table um, as a young kid. And I remember sitting there for hours and just sat there with my dad while my dad was drawing and painting and something, doing some art. And I just, I enjoyed it. Just family time. But I wasn't eating my veggies. So we got to be careful in how we persuade, and some ways obviously work better than others. Our guest um, today wrote an article, Seven Lessons in Persuasion from People Who Get Kids to Eat Their Veggies. Her name is Lara Vanderkam. She is a writer for Fast Company and um, has written many articles for them, but also many books as well. And she's joining us today to walk us through some of the lessons she learned from um, Food Corps, which is an organization that's helping kids learn to love their vegetables. Lara Vanderkam, welcome back to the show. Thank you. So far, you've taught us we need to involve our customers in the process, meet them where they are, get the cool kids 
you know, on your side, because once you kind of get the the early adopters, the cool kids involved, that that makes it a little more interesting to to our people. Which, by the way, get the get the early adopters, get the the name brand people in your organization on board, and make your offering fun, um, pretty basic, but but really profoundly um, important steps. Laura, what's the next step? What's the next thing we do to persuade? Well, the next two things are pretty related, which is that you have to be willing to sort of accept small steps. You have to be willing to make it easy for people to say yes, right? Like they want, you want them to be able to give you something yeah. and for you to be happy about that. And with that, you want to be incredibly positive. And this is where most parents fail in the great veggie wars. <laughs> it's kind of like uh, we, we are so inclined to yell about the fact that the kid isn't eating their you know, carrots and, and ignore that they had one bite of green beans. The food court goes totally the opposite direction. They're like, okay, you know, you're not going to eat the carrots. That's fine. But yay, the green bean. That was wonderful. Mm. Thank you so much for doing that. I hope you loved it. But even if you didn't love it, that was wonderful that you tried it. And it is amazing how much more reactive people are to things that are positive. Um, most of us are really not interested in being yelled at. Right. Um, we are not interested in fighting over these things. And, you know, kids have to do certain things that their parents say they do, but they're not happy about it. And they're not going to develop any interest in eating vegetables over the long term um, just through sheer yelling. Uh, so if we can try to be relentlessly positive about anything that you're trying to convince someone to do. It, it really goes with the saying that you, you catch more flies with honey than vinegar. Mm, totally. And if you put honey on vegetables, totally palatable. Even better. And why not, right? Like right. if your goal is to get them to eat the vegetables, go ahead and put anything on it. <laughs> put some honey work, on Whether it. it's honey or butter or ranch dressing or, or whatever. But the positivity is important because the kids may not try you know, the yams, but they may try the mashed potatoes. And so but you've got to see what they are doing that's positive. Otherwise, it will always be an endeavor of the negative. It will. And and they are giving you something. And in any negotiation, it's about getting something. And then hopefully you can build momentum from that to get something more. Mm, that's great advice. And then so accept small steps and be relentlessly positive. Uh, and then last but not least, spread what works. I mean, certain things you got to be noticing your technique and did it influence the child to do more? Because if it did, then we need to do more of that. And this works with anything. Uh, You know, if you're in sales, your colleagues who are also in sales are trying lots of different stuff too. They've probably seen what works in certain situations and what doesn't. And in the course of trying things out, they'll get ideas that, you know, could take you hours to come up with on your own, days to come up with on your own, or you could just see what they did and try it. Um, so I think it's better to be aware of what other people are um, trying in their attempts to persuade people, uh, trying those things yourself, seeing if they work. Maybe they don't, but the odds are reasonable that they might. And when you think about, again, these lessons came to you, really, it seems like from a nonprofit organization, right? Yeah, they're um, a, a service organization that sends core members out into schools um, to get them kids to try their vegetables and hoping build habits of healthy eating over the long term. And um, they, the, some of the research shows that uh, the students exposed to 10 hours of its programming, 7 in 10 will improve their attitude, attitude towards vegetables. More than 40% tried new vegetables for the first time. 
So it, I mean, again, it's just these are seem like just basic principles that work everywhere from a service organization to just my my dining room table. <laughs> I think so. I mean, persuasion is something that anyone can think about uh, and think about why would somebody want to do what you are asking them to do and. You know, the fact that you want them to do it is not in and of itself a very compelling reason. <laughs> uh, in any line of work, any area of life, you have to think about, well, why can I make this person want to do it themselves? Like, what can I do to make it something that they are choosing to do? Um, and, and if you can answer that question, the chances that they do what you are asking them to is, are a lot higher. Yeah, and and the weird, I guess, crazy thing about it is, it's it's theirs. They're they're doing it. It's their agency. It's their willpower. It's their choice. Exactly. There's a, a famous self help book, Dale Carnegie's um, How to Win Friends and Influence People. Yeah. And one of his bits of advice is that you want to arouse in the other person an eager desire to do whatever it is. Uh, you know, they're not going to do it because you're yelling at them. They're not going to do it because you're threatening them or making them feel bad. The way that people do things um, and, and stick with them over the long term is because they want to. Hmm. And so you have to answer the question of why should they want to do this. And what Food Corps has come up with is ways that people feel it is fun to try vegetables. They feel it will help them gain social acceptance to try vegetables. Um, they want to be friends with the core member. They want to be friends with their friends who are trying the vegetables. They're having a good time. They planted the vegetable themselves, so they're interested in seeing what came out of it. These are all great reasons to try vegetables, and they're much more effective than you're going to try this because I said you have to. Yeah, good stuff. Well, Laura Vanderkam, we appreciate you and uh, suggest to everybody, go check out her website, lauravandercam.com, as well as her uh, book, I Know How She Does It, What the Most Successful People Do Before Breakfast. It's just principles, folks, universal ideas. And they'll work. Uh, they work. It's it's human behavior. Humans just want to know that they're important. And um, if if you want to move somebody, you're gonna have to do more than just start yelling. You're gonna have to you're gonna have to understand and get into their head. Make it interesting. We'll take a break. Come back. Visit two of our uh, good buddies down at BYU Sports Nation. Find out what's going to be coming up on their show at the top of the hour, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends. It is that time when we shoot it uh, down to our good buddies at BYU Sports Nation to find out what will be coming up on their show in just about 11 minutes or so. Spencer and Jerem, hello, gentlemen. Hello, Matthew. (laughs) Nice uh, little song there, Jerem. Aren't you excited to watch the show now or listen to it on BYU Radio? Talk about good. Talk Talk about about good. Good. No, you talk about good. No, you talk about good. Hey, um, question for you. Okay. So I'm driving up. I look over at the baseball diamond, torn to shreds. Yep. And uh, first, I guess I'm wondering what they're doing. But more importantly, are you guys connected enough to get me some sod from there? Because I need some sod in my backyard. Yeah, just just go up and ask them for it. Just walk Just walk through tell there. Them, tell them. Uh, Can I tell them you guys sent Robbie me? Bullo sent you. Oh, really? Okay, I'm writing this down here. <laughs> 
We'll see how that Tell goes. Tell them Tom Homo sent you. Tom Homo <laughs> said I could come pick up some sod. Yeah. I'm going to need 700 square feet. <laughs> for my backyard. Well, it's sad. Uh, they're just creating a golf course there. Is, uh, is that for the golf team now? Yeah, it's for the exactly. It's going to be a driving range. They had this perfect stadium, and now it's just shredded. BYU you top golf. You know what? <laughs> <laughs> they can't top what they did in the WCC tournament, so they're just throwing in the towel. They're That's have it. A driving We're range. done. Baseball's over. Going out on top. <laughs> golf. Please tell me they're getting something really cool there. Here's what they're doing. Yeah. They are putting in artificial turf on the whole diamond. No dirt. Really? I'm not, I'm not kidding. Why? So that they can train and play earlier in the year. BYU's at a disadvantage living in yeah, a Zion. cold climate, a cold weather school, if you will. And yeah, Zion, what? Yeah. So they're going to put in artificial turf everywhere. The so, only dirt that's going to be there is, will be in one of the three bullpens. Oh, there, that's There weird. are about seven other teams nationally that have this. The number one team in the country, Oregon State, does. I went to a game there this year. It's super weird, traditionally. Yeah. You see the dirt. You see the grass. It's not like that. There will be, however, and uh, the same company that did the Rays and the Packers and the Twins uh-huh. is doing BYU's field. It will be the only field in the country with a heater under the field. It can so heat. It can melt how? the snow. Yeah, oh, it can cozy. melt six inches of snow per hour. Really? Yes. So BYU baseball is going to have a, like the Marriott Center Annex was an addition to the program that hopefully helps over time. Yes. The field will be all green, ready to harvest, and BYU <laughs> baseball will be raking in the runs in the future. They won't need a rake on the whole field. That's exactly right. They'll just they blow be, it and is okay. Yeah. So here's here, will, hopefully, yeah, hopefully they don't blow any leaves. But so. tell me, they're just go, tell me that they're because you can get creative now with turf. So are they going to have brown turf on the baseline yes. so it looks like it look from a distance? Okay, it will look like. Dirt. Wow! It'll look like your baseball diamond and field, plus the heater. The that's, heater underneath. That's How cool, oh, right? That? That's really cool. Cool, yeah. Because right? you know you're just going to go out there and see all the players down on the ground just getting cozy, warming up. Just laying down. They, they won't even have warm. to throw a ball. They'll just warm up from just laying there. This will allow them to spend more time on the field training. That's this great. Is, this is a, a great tool, games. man. They I had, had no wait. idea. They I guess. had to wait until late February, early March to play games. They could play a little earlier if they wanted. If It is a little weird to schedule a game in Provo where it might be like 30 degrees. Yeah, that's a little weird. But uh, it's mainly what Spencer said. In the fall, they can get out there and practice outdoors. Because right now they're practicing indoors. Yeah, which is that won't help you. In the indoor practice facility. I remember. Not made for baseball. By the way, that's why I didn't get to play baseball in high school. Because the tryouts were in a gym. And I wasn't used to taking a, oh, fielding a ball why. off of a gym floor. Oh, shoot. It's, uh, you know, hard as a rock. <laughs> anyway, ruined my career. So um, how about you wow. guys? Yeah, it was kind of sad. But I made, I mean, I, I played tennis, but not the same. Hey, yeah. that's... Uh, tennis is different sport. than baseball. I don't know if you guys have noticed that. Yeah, when I hit a tennis ball, it feels different. <laughs> yeah, totally. Hey, um, what's going on on your show? You're still doing your show, though, right? Even though they're doing oh, the, the baseball Where field. Where do we begin? <laughs> How about a perfect 10? <gasps> Where? Well, 10 wins predicted for BYU football by Vegas. the odds makers in Las Vegas. Really? 10 wins and three losses in the regular season. BYU is one of nine teams to be projected to win 10 or more games in all of college football. Why? Wow. We want to know why, and we're going to discuss if that's too high, too low. Right on. 
and why so many Utah fans feel like they need to go uh, to Las Vegas and place a bet. Huh. Yeah, how many? What's Utah's over under? We'll tell you that coming up. Plus, PGA Tour golfer Daniel Summerhays, his 18th top 10 finish over the weekend at the Memorial. Uh, we we chat with him. What did Jack Nicholas say to him as he walked off the course? Ooh. Plus, Ed Eyestone from Tracktown, USA, Eugene, Oregon, Hayward Field, the NCAA Track and Field Championships, a record 15 athletes representing from BYU. We will talk to the former Olympian and national champion Ed Eyestone about what it will take to bring home some hardware. In Tracktown, USA. Boy. Again, locked and loaded. BYU's Steve Prefontaine, Ed Eyestone. <laughs> That's great. Ed Eyestone is a great interview, too. That's true. Oh, and uh, what former BYU baseball player moved up to AAA? We'll tell you. <laughs> Promotion. And he had a great night. And see, but he played back in the old days before the new turf. Back on the baseball field with the grass and the dirt. And I remember when we were playing on the dirt and the grass, boys. While they join us. Chorus, not a Rick Aguilera. There were some ball players, boy. <laughs> you guys, why do you always have to go into your Utah voices? Is it Utah? It's or? We, it's West, West Virginia. West Virginia. West Virginia. <laughs> got us going in the hood. So now that yeah. that's New Orleans. <laughs> that's New. That is New Orleans. That's that's Gator. That's my Gator guy. We done got a Gator, boy. Oh, that's, see, that's the Bayou. Yeah, down in the Bayou. bayou. I don't. It's just somewhere else. No, but whatever it is, it's yeah. it's high quality. That's and, Farmer Friend. It's, it's Hanksville, Utah. And that's right. what. <laughs> is this this is the quality of voice work they will get twenty four seven on BYU Sports Nation. It's kitty o though. <laughs> we've yeah we've been called some things you know throughout the years you know one in a local newspaper yeah the Pollyanna something or other oh really made fun of us yeah. They haven't listened to they're this part. Yeah. Hey, Scott. They're not, they're not wrong. They're not wrong. <laughs> but you guys are – But they did they mention your voice work? Uh, they did not. They did not specify. Okay. See? At Dizzy Dental. <laughs> Diddy Dental. All right, boys. Go knock them dead and go rest your voices. You got it. You only have about Can't. 40 – you only have about yeah, four minutes. Go. Okay. We got, we got to do it. Knock them dead. Peace Fill out. Fill that kizavity with some 24-karat gold. <laughs> <laughs> Diddy Dental. Good stuff. Thanks, guys. Uh, knock them dead. Boy, really, that, uh, I'm telling you, they go one hour like that. They don't, I don't think they pull out that many voices usually. They and, normally change voices between breaks, right? Yeah. I mean, you, you got One a, interview with the Bayou voice, mm-hmm. the next interview, little Utah yeah, they twang. Just, yeah. A little, yeah. It's, to me, it's just so exciting because you never know what will be next on the show. It's, you got to listen to find out. Exactly. Hey, uh, if you're thinking of stealing an iPhone, do not answer FaceTime calls. Check. Okay. Florida man, 18-year-old Chandler Ridge Carlisle, who police say asked to borrow a man's phone while at a friend's house to call for a ride home, but forgot that borrowing involves returning the thing you borrowed. Stung by the $600 loss, the victim reported the theft of the police, reports the Palm Beach Post. A deputy at first texted the stolen phone, identifying himself and demanding its return. When that didn't work, he made a FaceTime call to the police. I mean, to the phone, the police did. And snapped a picture of the man who answered. (laughs) Busted. That's smart, right? Oh, yeah. So you just do a little FaceTime call. The guy answers, yo, what's up? Gotcha. This is the uh, this is the police, Palm Beach police. Now we have your picture. You're going to want to return that phone. Anyway, Carlisle stands charges with grand theft. That's uh, that'll teach you. 
That'll teach you, kids. Anyway, that's right. What you're going to do is well, I'm going to FaceTime you. Part of the song. Um, tonight is the, uh, the big game three of the uh, playoffs for the NBA title, and they're moving back to the Cavaliers. What do we call uh, Cleveland? Believe Land. Believe Land. I guess that was last year's thing. They got the title, now it's just the land. Now it's the land, but mm-hmm. we'll see how they land because last year the uh, Warriors were up two, went to Believe Land, and lost two. Mm-hmm. This year they're up two. We'll see what happens. There was a license plate I saw going around on the internet of someone in Ohio that's license plate was LLWLW. Whichever, like lost, lost, win, win, lost. Yeah, exactly. That, yeah, what happened cool. last year in the finals? Oh, that's it cool. Was their thing. That's mm-hmm. really cool. Um, hey, as we wrap this thing up, let's get to the hero story. Really, the heroes are the Ad- are the uh, the Ganaway family. Nine year old Addison Ganaway basically described the situation, saying, "Kaboom." That's the noise that led her to the unimaginable sight as she saw a shed crash down on her dad and trapping him. The dad was out trying to take down a shed for his mom, a 40-year-old shed, Tuesday morning. And uh, the shed, when it came down, it kind of rolled and flipped over sideways, knocking Matt, the father, down and pinned him underneath. Uh, Knocked him unconscious. He was gasping for air. So the kids jumped in. Addison, along with Ethan Ganaway, and a bunch of their kids jumped in, went over, and eventually were able to lift uh, the the shed off of their dad and get their dad out. Uh, they said adrenaline caused them to forget all the other pain and problems they had, and bada boom, bada bing, they saved their dad's life. So the Ganaway clan, they're all very happy. The father said it's especially after a situation like this, you have to live your life to the fullest, and my family and my kids are number one to me, he said. So isn't it interesting how sometimes our bad, traumatic moments are the ones that remember, help us remember what matters most to us in life? That's why we do the show, just to give you some uh, a respite from life and some hope that it can get better. We'll be back again tomorrow, 9 to noon Eastern time. Uh, until then, let's take care of each other, watch out for each other, and we'll be back tomorrow. BYU Sports Nation is up next.